So people might be asking like, why, why Weinstein? Um, just to give people a view on like where this has come from, why Eric Weinstein um, and yeah, why I wrote this thread in the first place, which has led to this conversation. So essentially it was back in April, 2020, um, I just watched his episode on Joe Rogan. Um, it was early lockdown, so it was about, I think March was kind of where government action on the coronavirus got kind of real. Um, and I remember at the time, Eric Weinstein being somebody who um, was speaking with like great clarity on what was happening at the time. And I think that's been true for a few years, to be fair. So I was listening to a lot of his uh, content. I watched his episode on Joe Rogan and he brings up certain problems um, that we observe in our society and traces their roots back to the early 1970s. Now as a Bitcoiner, when I hear that, my ears prick up naturally um, for reasons I'm sure we'll discuss later. Um, and I'm expecting him at any moment to bring up Bitcoin and, or to bring up the money at least and the, the beginnings of the fiat money era. But he doesn't, he takes it another way. And essentially, um, so naturally when we examine certain problems, observe certain problems, we try to trace their roots back to a fundamental cause. And essentially from my perspective, he stops short. He attributes the problems we see in society to the early 1970s with the specific cause being a pause in, the, in innovation and discovery within theoretical physics, which from his perspective um, kind of powers the whole economy. Mm -hmm. um, as a Bitcoiner, I have a different perspective on that. So I was kind of moved to write this thread um, inspired by uh, the episode as well as I guess boredom um, from being in lockdown for a month, imagine that. <laughs> Um, and essentially, after I wrote the thread, it, it got a lot of attention um, on Bitcoin Twitter. I got some nice replies and direct messages from Bitcoiners who essentially said it articulated their feelings well. Um, and yeah, kind of distilled their feelings, feelings in terms of what was going wrong in society. So the reason I wrote the thread in the first place, obviously, I was moved to by this conversation with Joe Rogan. Um, and it's essentially, in many ways, it was out of respect for him, for Weinstein, as someone who is intellectually honest, mm. uh, non-partisan, thinks from first principles, understands the problems that we're experiencing that have been festering for decades and which find their root in something which happened in the early 1970s. Mm. So he's a thinker I respect. His perspective has a considerable degree of overlap with mine. Um, but this key way in which it differed, I, I felt was important to articulate. So essentially the reason I pitched the idea for this podcast to you was to explain in, so to pinch one of his terms, to explain our portal. Um, that is our sense-making structure of the world around us, um, including what's been going wrong in society for the last few decades and a perspective on what we might do to solve it. Um, now, as I've said, that a, a portal, that's terminology I've stolen from him. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the name of his podcast. 
Um, and he, so yeah, here's his explanation of what a, a portal is that I, I took from one of his um, first episodes uh, on the portal. What the portal is going to be about is breaking this bubble, a bubble which has been around since the early 70s and all of us have grown up defined and determined by this set of common misconceptions about the world in which we live. The portal is an attempt to end this bubble, to look beyond the intellectual laziness and stasis which is available everywhere through the institutional media and legacy sense-making structures and to start listening to a different conversation. Mm. So I like this framing because it draws attention to the fact that our very narratives and even more fundamental than that, sense-making structures are off. So how are we supposed to understand the world if the very structures that we use to make sense of it, um, as I said, are off? Right. So, yeah, from my perspective, this conversation has a few purposes. Uh, one would be to explore Weinstein's perspective specifically, because I think it's, it's, um, it has merit. Um, but also in recognition of the fact that, as I said, he's, he's this intellectually honest person. He's willing to consider diverse perspectives. Um, and crucially, as someone like that, uh, with an audience, a huge audience, um, his audience are worthy of respect, um, naturally, because he is open to new ideas, thinks from first principles and so on. So too are his audience. And he, ha he has a lot. He has a large audience. Um, so yeah, there's that and there's the, the, to invite him into the conversation, I guess. Yeah. Um, second purpose would be, yeah, and a slightly wider one, uh, to explore Gen X perspectives in general. So in many ways, his perspective is quite typically Gen, Gen X, sorry, um, in that he has an original point of view, but it's, it's still kind of anchored to uh, the kind of the status quo, the, and I would say the fiat and the institutional status quo. So in that quote I just mentioned, he says, um, uh, so we have this bubble, a bubble which, been, which has been around since the early 70s. All of us have grown up defined and determined by it. So again, he's aware of it, but he's not completely removed from it. Um, and this is very, very typical of Gen X, from my perspective at least. When I speak to them about Bitcoin either online or real life, um, they're anchored to this status quo, right. institutional status quo. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think it, yeah, it's, it's worthy of discussion and just kind of shining the spotlight on that. Yeah. and the ways in which that they make certain assumptions which aren't, uh, don't hold up to so, they, um, so to our earlier point, it's the edges of the lens through which they view the world. They're not taking into account, which is actually very interesting because here's Weinstein saying the, port, the purpose of the portal or what he's using terming the portal is the sense-making structure so the aperture through which we view the world, he actually thinks is broken, right? I guess, I get, I, I, 
he doesn't specify, but this would be both at an individual and or collective level, it seems. Um, and so the Bitcoiners, which clearly there's a lot of respect for someone like that. They're looking at the world in a very zoomed out way, but they haven't zoomed out enough, right? They haven't gotten beyond the axioms of their own worldview to really see, I guess what we would say are the ultimate causes or the, the, the ultimate givens, as uh, Mises might say. And with that, clearly Weinstein has a large audience, has a lot of respect. He, he is very intellectually honest, curious, uh, strives to reason from first principles. Um, I see that you may have felt this uh, impulse to do the thread and reach out to Weinstein and myself and talk about this, similar to the way I actually felt studying Jordan Peterson, um, who all has his own, also a very strong thinker, goes to first principles on a lot of topics, uh, a, a wide variety of, of fields as well. I would say both him and Weinstein are very, very polymathic. Um, and I've long thought that if you could orange pill Peterson, the real benefit's not Peterson himself. I mean, it is indirectly, but it's his audience, right? It's the people, millions of highly intelligent, highly ambitious people sense something wrong in the world that are very conscientious and responsible, hardworking. If you could get them to see uh, the merits of moving the world onto a Bitcoin standard, I think you could radically turn the world that direction more quickly. Um, so I'm with you on all that, totally see it and understand it, but it's, and this is where it gets complicated because it does require this, metacognition in a way because when you start talking about money the mo money is the portal in a way right the sense making structure if you look at how an economy if you look at first as an individual market actor our sense making structures are our faculties or our ability to see and hear and touch and taste and, and so forth but at the collective level the sense making function is the price signal essentially it is the the economic telecommunications signal or system through which we're communicating our actions with one another. And in that way, money is the aperture. Money is the, the window or the lens through which we're seeing the world, right? When we see, when I see green tea costs $3.19, that's giving me certain information. Um, even if I'm not actively cognitively going through it, 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 it enters this, um, tacit type of economic calculation I'm performing all the time. When you corrupt that number through monetary easing, you're actually polluting the lens. So it's the, the, the metacognition that's necessary here, which I think is why Bitcoin is hard to grasp is because you almost have to look at what is looking, right? You have to realize that you think in dollars, you're programmed to think in dollars, you're conditioned to think this way. You now have to step out of that conditioning for a moment to really, to, to look at what is looking. <laughs> Right. Um, and this gets to, I, I think it's great that we're doing this because uh, there's, there's the Einstein quote, which I'll paraphrase. It's like, you can never solve a problem from the same uh, level or resolution at which the problem were created. Right. You actually have to transcend or zoom out or get to, get to a different level to really solve it uh, at a base level. Um, so, Great context 
and color around this. Um, how, if you're sitting down with Weinstein, he's got this same context and background to the thread and, and purpose of, of uh, we'll say you reaching out. How do you craft this narrative? Where do you start? How do you, like, where, do, how do you, I guess just, <laughs> let's just hear the message to Weinstein. Yeah, no, yeah, good place to start. Um, and I think, yeah, it, something you touched on there about how difficult Bitcoin is to see at first, it's almost like for everybody who grasps it at this point, there was some trigger. Often it's like just number go up. Um, but it's, there's, it's not just the trigger, it's what keeps them going down the rabbit hole. It's like it has to map onto something, some intuition, some sense that something isn't quite right. Um, and yeah, for me, I can't remember what that was now, to be honest. I think I've always had the sense um, that the way we lived in terms of the economy, high levels of debt, uh, the way conventional life involves tens of thousands of pounds of uh, debt to get an education and then the same again to buy a house. Mm -hmm. I always felt that was a bit off. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, some, a lot of people who are into Bitcoin already are somewhat predisposed to it. And I think the value of this episode, that thread and um, engaging with Weinstein is um, it maps Bitcoin very specifically onto the problems we see today and coherently traces their roots back in a very credible way to the early 1970s. And I think with Weinstein, Weinstein, <laughs> the fact that he has already done a lot of the work to lay the groundwork in terms of um, explaining his perspective to his audience is uh, why he's kind of like a fertile soil if that makes sense and why his audience would be fertile soil for bitcoin so yeah my what yeah my, my kind of third uh aim for this conversation was to empower bitcoiners like we all want to orange pill our friends and family right because once you see it you can't unsee it mm -hmm. and it just colors your perspective your lens your very aperture through which you see the world um and yeah, you, I've seen you talk about wanting this channel to be a place for like timeless content. And what I hope this conversation creates is um, a timeless piece, piece of content which empowers Bitcoiners um, and just kind of encapsulates their worldview, um, talks about the causes, talks about what the potential solutions might be. Um, and yeah, I, th I think just the way you teed me up there was nice um, and just yeah, brought me to that. Essentially, in terms of like how I would approach it with Weinstein, naturally, whenever you kind of uh, disagree with somebody, it makes sense to first focus on what you agree on. Hmm. And I think what we agree on is um, what we agree on is a huge portion of it, which is essentially what the problems are. Um, 
definitely on a surface level. When we get back to the root of it, we start to disagree. But in terms of the, the problems, I guess I just riff with him on um, the fact that as we can see, as Bitcoiners can see, as he can see, and as his audience can see, we're living through this period of economic and cultural decay. We agree on that. What we disagree on is why. So, I mean, what, 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 let's examine the symptoms of that claim that we're living through economic and cultural decay. So social unrest, um, look around the world, it's not just the US, um, theirs has kind of the, been the highest profile recently around the election um, and uh, the killing of George Floyd before that. Um, but Hong Kong, the yellow vest protests in France, uh, the burning of the central bank in Lebanon, uh, there was unrest in Chile, uh, I forget the figure, but it, it, it's there's a staggering number of um, nations in which significant social unrest was seen uh, in 2019. So before coronavirus, because that's uh, something of a um, it, it's not it's not uh, it doesn't speak to a trend, right? Right. Um, but it's not just social unrest. Um, Inequality, so that's becoming a, um, a key issue for lots of people. I think um, when people are, so it's not just about inequality, it's about the wrong kind of inequality, right? When people are, people are not born equal, so when people are free, outcomes won't be equal. So you're always gonna have inequality uh, in a free society, but it's the specific kinds of inequality we have, people don't like it. Um, yeah, we have a perspective on that, but um, that's another symptom. Um, increasing fragility in the financial system. Um, it's kind of like, feels like what we're doing now, we're like the forest managers who have kind of outlawed, uh, I don't know what they call it, but essentially uh, in trying to prevent forest fires, what a lot of uh, people will do jurisdictions will do is um prevent like any of the smallest fires right but what all that essentially means is that when the big one comes it's huge yeah uh, and essentially what what we seem to be in a situation uh the situation in the financial system right now is one in which it is incredibly fragile uh, ever since 2008 it's like we're clearly waiting for this huge one which is taking more and more intervention, monetary policy, um, quite often intervention, central bank policy intervention to prevent. Um, so that, that's another thing. Uh, national debt levels, uh, I believe it's getting to the point where like the interest on the debt will become unsustainable for many countries mm -hmm. um, and will only be sustainable through huge devaluation of the currency, which in itself is a wealth transfer uh, political polarization uh, that can be seen anywhere to Weinstein's point a lack of meaningful innovation and discovery within certain fields um, there's that classic uh, Peter Thiel thought experiment imagine you're in a room in 1970 in the 1970s um, what has changed except kind of the fashion and the screens not much mm -hmm. um, 
And another one that was new to me recently, but um, I was introduced to through this. Um, there's a book called Bowling Alone. I don't know if you've heard of it. It was written in the 90s, um, but it, it's a book that spun out of a, an essay. And essentially, uh, the, the essay was titled The Strange Death of Civic America. And essentially, it's talking about the trend that, we, that was observable as early as the 90s, um, which was essentially declining participation in things like um, all sorts of civic associations. So parent-teacher associations, um, military veteran associations, uh, like neighborhood watch kind of things, um, women's groups, uh, like Freemasons, all of these things which kind of um, give life and health to civic life. This essay was specifically about, about America, but it, it, that kind of thing, uh, not being involved in your local community, I, I would say that characterizes the average millennial's life. Mm -hmm. uh, so it certainly feels like it's still a trend that's in motion. All of these things suggest, point to a society, an economy, a culture, which is not well, right? Um, so yeah, I actually, um, I pulled out a few quotes of Weinstein's um, to kind of do justice to his perspective on these problems. Yeah, let me go through a few quotes. So first of all, uh, this one was from, uh, what's his name? Ted Cruz's podcast. It's not one that I listened to, but um, I went back and just did a bit of research for this conversation. Um, and it kind of sets up his perspective quite well. So the US had an exceptional run of it between 1945 and about 71 to 73, where we had broadly distributed, very stable, technologically led growth. And this high level of growth caused us to predicate our institutions on an expectation of growth. That expectation mysteriously changed around 71 to 73. And this is the important singularity which many don't even know existed. What happened was that, so of those institutions which were predicated on growth, universities had the most aggressive stall speed. They didn't move fast enough, so they became pathological before, before other institutions became pathological. The problem we're having, which very few people understand, is a universal failure of the institutions to be able to provide for the people who buy into the idea of putting something in, in the hope of getting something out. This could be the expectation of permanent employment, the hope of becoming a shareholder. Um, and it was the universities which were the first to need emergency assistant, assistance. So he, he also acknowledges that this represents a breaking of the social contract uh, and that the university system became pathological. Um, couple of interesting things to pull out there before uh, I go to another quote of his, which uh, examines the root of the problem. So number one, there's two pieces of overlap with the Bitcoiners perspective, uh, and that is the fundamental change which happened in the early 70s. So there's a website, WTFHappenedIn1971.com, uh, which was created, yeah, created by a couple of Bitcoiners. Um, it's, it's, there's no narrative there, it's just a series of charts. And what it illustrates is that 
across a variety of economic, cultural, societal phenomena, they were following a specific trend before 19, the early 1970s. And then at the very same point in history, they all completely diverge from the path they were following before. The, question, the, the obvious question is why? Weinstein's perspective, uh, we'll get on to a, a moment, but that's just quite an interesting thing that he acknowledges that. He actually mentions uh, the website uh, in that interview. Uh, and the other thing is an acknowledgement that this is institutional. Um, there is a rot, a decay within our very institutions. Mm. Um, and yeah, th this isn't something that's going to get sorted without a fundamental reshaping of them. On that point, uh, I love the Talebian premise that systems rot when skin in the game is removed. And we could consider that 1971 event, the decoupling from gold, the dollar depegging from gold, as really one of the most significant removals of skin in the game in history, right? We, we literally removed all accountability and restrictions on the monetary regimes of the world such that they could finance whatever um, they desired, more or less, right? We could say there's still some, uh, at least just using the U.S. as an example, there are some restrictions to the electoral process and whatnot, but these are, they've been proven to be rather ineffective. Like once you're in office, the name of the game is cut as many deals as you can before you're out of office, right? You're incentivized to have a short time horizon. But the, the uh, long-term accountability that the gold standard imposed on the established economic order was completely removed. And that's why, you know, Bitcoiners at least would argue, you see systemic rot in all these different domains from exactly that point, 1971 forward. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's incredible. And now we're to the point, as to your earlier point, is in the U.S., we are right on the cusp of interest expense on the national debt exceeding total tax revenues. So the, 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 just a comparative example of this would be as if you're grossing $100,000 a year income, right, you as an individual employee or contractor, whatever you are, but you have debt that's, that's generating uh, an interest expense of $110,000 per year. Right, so your total income is insufficient to cover the interest expense to just service the debt alone. That is the fiscal situation the U.S. government is in, and this is, you know, arguably directly connected to the incentives of the money that they were they not only incentivized all market actors to accumulate debt, which is eroded by inflation over time, but they themselves. That's the reason they went to a fiat currency standards because they had taken on debts that they could not cover. So. In inflation gave them this implicit means of default. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Please go your ahead. Your point about skin in the game, your point about skin in the game is um, something which a Keynesian perspective could never see mm -hmm. because it's one of those pieces of fundamental architecture within the system, which within a, a Keynesian 
And to um, listeners who don't know what Keynesian means, essentially just think mainstream modern economics. Yeah. Right. I see central bank propaganda more or less. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the, the, the Keynesians hold the fundamental architecture of the system as assumptions, right? The, which they can't examine. They're just, uh, yeah. The fundamental architecture of the fiat money system is the fundamental architect, architecture of their perspective. And they, so they can't see outside it. And so to that point there, you, you make two separate points which are interesting. One is about the interest on the national debt um, exceeding tax revenues, <laughs> which is hilarious and terrifying. Yes. Um, but if essentially, if you haven't seen Bitcoin, or if you're not a, an Austrian economist, which feels like an, a, a niche group, right? Um, if you're if you're neither of those things, you haven't studied either of those things. Then when you hear the national debt problem, you can't see the skin in the game problem, and you're kind of um, you start listening to people like Stephanie Kelton um, and the modern monetary theorists about how uh, the national debt doesn't matter, money isn't real, um, and you can essentially do what you want, print as much as you want because you're a, a sovereign currency issuer. Um, and I hear this get parroted like in popular culture now. So um, another Joe Rogan episode, uh, this one was with Andrew Schultz, uh, who, who's a comedian. It was him and somebody else, I think. But Andrew Schultz was saying, um, oh, I, I spoke to, so they brought like the national debt clock, I think on the screen. And he said, oh, I spoke to Joe Weisenthal, who I believe is a writer for Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. um, and he was essentially saying that um, the national debt doesn't matter because we can just print more money, blah, 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 blah. So there's like a, a intellectually honest comedian. Um, he's willing to be unpopular, Andrew Schultz. He's worthy of respect. He's not a bullshitter. Um, but essentially, because he doesn't have the view of um, the Bitcoiners or the Austrians, which uh, is able to kind of step outside the paradigm, zoom out, as I've said, he, he can't see the skin in the game point mm. um, and can't critique that. The, the thing that I, I come back to with um, the, the whole national debt um, doesn't matter kind of thing, this is a digression, but it, it, it's a worthy one, is okay, you think the national debt doesn't matter and we can print more money and uh, it'll be fine. Like, does that, e even if you're, you're, you haven't studied economics particularly, does that pass your BS detector? Does that sound right? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, right? Yeah. Like, you kind of, you get into a position where you have to do all sorts of mental gymnastics not to see it. Right. Um, but yeah, anyway, I digress. So yeah, the, so that was the first part of Weinstein's perspective. Um, on, uh, so that, and that was on his podcast with Ted Cruz. On his uh, appearance with Joe Rogan, 
uh, he, he gets a bit more kind of fundamental and examines the root of it. Uh, and here's what he said to Joe Rogan. We've been stalled out for almost 50 years in theoretical physics. Something bizarre happened in the early 1970s that we should all be talking about that almost nobody knows about. And one of the things that happened was that physics effectively came to an end. My belief is that since the early 70s, very little in our society has been progressing. That's not true for computers and a few other things like fracking. But in general, in an average room, if you subtract off the screens, you can't definitely tell that that room didn't exist in 1973. Mm. Because we stopped growing, we got crazy. Because everything was built on growth, everything became a Ponzi scheme when growth ran out. So we've been hollowing ourselves out from that time, getting crazier and farther from reality, and we have to figure out where we are. My belief was that our economy was almost completely created by theoretical physics. Physics completely underlines chemistry and plastics. It gave us the semiconductor, which allows us to do our computing. It gave us the World Wide Web, telecommunications, medical imaging. We don't really appreciate that theoretical physics has been the great success story of our time. And that's essentially his point. So th this is where we start to diverge, right? So you set up uh, this kind of section by saying, how would I approach it with uh, Weinstein? First of all, we'd focus on what we agree, but we're getting to the point where we, uh, our perspectives diverge here. So he acknowledges that something happened in the early 1970s, which was the beginning of a lot of this unreality, which I think is a fantastic word for it. Um, he recognizes that it's institutional, but in searching for the root of it, he gets as far as a pause in discovery and innovation within theoretical physics and then stops. Mm -hmm. From his perspective, um, I can understand that. Um, I think, he, is he a physicist, a mathematician? I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't disagree about the importance of theoretical physics and the way it underlies those things. What I do take issue with is the idea that that is at the root and that nothing is upstream of it. Mm. Because from our perspective, there absolutely is something that is upstream of it. And that is the money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The money, you, you said this better earlier, money is the base layer upon which the institutions, including the academic institutions, are built. Mm -hmm. So the way you do money, of course, it affects everything on top of it. Yeah, I would say it's interesting, too, because theoretical physics, physics would be in an, uh, an epistemological sense. So if you're looking at a knowledge base, right, if you're studying biology and you can get to the physics of the biology, you're at kind of the base layer. So physics is this, like mathematics, this ultra high resolution map of reality. So it's as if uh, Eric Weinstein, hope I pronounced his name right, took that as the as the the first principle, I guess this this interruption in the innovation or discovery or development of theoretical physics as being the cause, the causal factor of all these cascading effects 
in society. But what I think Bitcoiners might argue is that there's a layer deeper to that. It's not that theoretical physics have changed in any way. It's our study and understanding and comprehension and implementation of them that have changed. And that change is a result of the way we deal with information, which is predominantly what money does, right? It's an informational utility for how we exchange, um, how we know what's working in the market and what's not, essentially. Um, and another way to think about it in a physics sense, actually, is that, as we talked about earlier, entropy is uncertainty. So money is a tool that market actors are using to deal with uncertainty because money gives you, it's a claim on the savings or the creative output of humanity. So whatever problem you run into in the marketplace, money is your best insurance policy on solving that problem because it can be used to lay claim on any good service knowledge that anyone anywhere can provide. Right? So any problem solver in the world, you can lay claim to their time, efforts, and energy, and ingenuity with money to solve, solve whatever problem you may encounter. So in that way, money is anti-entropic. Right? It's an insurance policy on entropy or on uncertainty. And I think when you corrupt that medium, you're not market actors, the, the collective socioeconomic organism, if you will, that we are, humanity. It's not as able to deal with entropy as it otherwise would be. And that's, that's where I think the divergence occurs here is that there's a, we, we move away from free market principles in the sphere of money. And that has all these downstream consequences that Weinstein has properly identified, but misdiagnosed the cause of. Mm. His model of the world is, it's compelling, it's attractive, it's credible um, for a few reasons. Um, first of all, it's nonpartisan, which for a lot of people, um, they're just kind of done with uh, party politics and whatever, what have you. Um, and, you know, this uh, conversation is quite, it's kind of US focused. Um, his, he's a US citizen, so his, um, perspective is, is US focused but, but as someone from the UK who understands a little bit about the way we do money um, I get like I don't think engage an engagement with like U, the US polit political soap opera is kind of like th there's a reason for it basically the as the uh, issuer of the global reserve currency uh, and the geopolitical power um, that that gives the US, the US is essentially my government. It's just that I don't get to vote who's in charge of, or not. That's right. Um, because it's not my government on everything, but in a geopolitical sense, it's my government. So the Fed being the central bank of the world sort of indirectly makes the U.S. government the indirect world government, basically. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so yeah, he, he's nonpartisan, um, but I think crucially, his model allows him to see through and poke fun at and call bullshit on mainstream narratives, um, which just 
if you have like a, a credible view of the world, which does that right now, it's kind of ripe for popularity because people are looking for these new narratives because they, they know a lot of the old ones and the mainstream ones are kind of uh, beginning to break mm -hmm. um, and not kind of provide a complete picture of the world. Um, as a potentially interesting aside, did you know that... Um, just talking about the way that the, the Keynesians um, can't explain certain things because the assumptions of the architecture are their, the assumptions of their perspective. So they can't look outside uh, the current paradigm. Uh, the Queen, Queen of England in 2008, 2009, went to the London School of Economics um, obviously in the wake of the great financial crisis um, for a lecture or a talk or something. Um, and afterwards she, she asked them something, something like, um, why didn't you see this coming? Why did nobody see this coming? And nobody was able to answer her, mm -hmm. I'm sure. Um, which I think is hilarious because it's just like, she's the queen, but she's asking the question that everybody wants to ask. Right. Mm -hmm. And, a Keynesian economist cannot tell you why. An Austrian can, a Bitcoiner can, because they're outside the paradigm. Yeah. Um, but a mainstream economist, mainstream journalist, because they all hold these Keynesian assumptions about the way that the government through the central bank should have control of monetary policy and that, that this is just the way national economies need to be managed. Um, I think that's... Yeah, those things being assumptions means you, you can't see outside them. Yeah, I would argue, too, that a proper Austrian would respond to that is the hubris in that very notion that you can manage a national economy, that you can manage, that a human being or a group of human beings can manage a complex system is the, the core of arrogance that we're pointing towards here. It's like you cannot manage these complex systems, the best way we can deal with uncertainty. And by the way, the definition of a, a complex adaptive system is you cannot distinguish inputs from outputs. We don't know what causal arrows go into a complex system that come out as causes. We cannot identify it. It's lost in that cloud of complexity. The best way we can deal with them is to create buffers that as to let would say, protect your downside before you think about your upside. Um, to create buffers against that uncertainty, to manage our downside risk, but uh, leave opportunities for upside gains, right? You can't go in and say, this is, we're gonna crank this lever and the economy's gonna do this. The, the, the economy is not a clock, right? We're stuck in this Newtonian model of the universe um, at the institutional level, right? The institutions are, I think, slower to adapt. Again, we're back to physics, right? We're how is physics influencing our worldview? I would say at the institutional level, and you can go read Dalio's work, right? One of the greatest uh, state capitalists in the world today, he, he thinks of the economy as a machine. He writes about the economy as a machine. It's not a machine. Mm. More like weather. It's more like it's a, it's a complex system. So um, I think an Austrian would say that a free market is actually, it approaches the uncertainty of the world with more humility. And the realization that you're, there's always more to learn. So you should never think that your model is complete and try to, try to impose your model on reality. You should uh, 
we should be listening to nature first and assuming nature is correct unless proven otherwise. Whereas I think we've sort of inverted um, that presupposition. So going back to one of the reasons that I think this conversation is useful, Weinstein, he's quite typical of his generation in that he's far away enough from the building of the institutions and the writing of the social contract to be able to see the rot and the decay within the system. But he's too close to it and hasn't been screwed over by it enough to realize, I think, the extent of it, the extent of the, and just how rotten they are, how broken the social contract is. And because of those things, I think he, he massively underestimates the, um, the depth and the extent of millennial disillusionment. I say millennial because I'm a millennial. Um, th these things are trends, right? So it is absolutely and probably more so relevant to Gen Z. Um, but yeah, just to say that it's a generational thing. Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of Gen X, when I speak to them, um, I shoo these, these similar um objections to bitcoin beliefs about um the world beliefs about what's wrong that are just still firmly anchored in the status quo mm -hmm. it's not like a, a completely uh, generational thing because they're obviously like gen x bitcoiners who can see it um and there are millennial people who like read too many mainstream publications who can't mm -hmm. see it um the cypherpunks were gen x ultimately right. um as is safety, um, I believe. Maybe yeah. not. Um, yeah. Jimmy Song, a lot of those guys are. Exactly. So it's it's not exclusively so, but it's typical yeah. of of Gen X. And we'd say age age is a mindset, right? Like it's exactly. This is the stereotypical. When we say Gen X, we're not saying these this specific age range only. It really is the mindset associated with that which tends to clump around that demographic. Um, and I wonder, I just something to throw in here and think about. The way I see this is that the, it's generational because like not only the inputs people are taking in, so you could be a Gen X millennial aged person if you're just consuming mainstream media all day, but also with time, I think we, we lose neuroplasticity, our worldviews become a little more ossified so I think Gen Xers that have succeeded under the fiat paradigm, you know, historically more than anyone else, they've become pretty ossified in this worldview. 100%. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of toying with some thoughts at the minute. Um, so I'm, I'm writing a piece on um, the millennial case for Bitcoin uh, mm. and a lot of this generational stuff. Um, and what one of the things, so I kind of, I asked myself, so if these things are trends um, and if uh, the, the root of the kind of millennial predicament, millennial disillusionment um, does find its roots in the monetary paradigm, then what would you expect to be true? And one of the things you'd expect is that for these things, this disillusionment to be like, 
present within Gen X, but very niche. And, well, how might you test that qualitatively, right? This is a kind of qualitative exploration. Um, and so I started to think about like millennial, sorry, Gen X R and popular culture. And if you go on IMDb, two of the most popular films from the 90s, when Gen X were like the, the main drivers of popular culture. Um, so if you go through a few of them, they will be, so there's this kind of like very like uh, normal choices like uh, Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump, and there's another one. But then like two of the top four or two of the top five are The Matrix, which is obviously the origin of the red pill meme, mm -hmm. which is kind of, it's even gained um, relevance since then to confront an uncomfortable truth, mm -hmm. uh, to be able to see reality for what it is. Mm -hmm. Finds its inception in a kind of Gen X film. It's quite interesting. And then Fight Club. Mm. Let me just find this quote. Both of which are allegory for uh, government control, right, in a way. So there's some centralized authority, uh, I guess, unseen in a way, controlling the narrative. 100%. Yeah, it's fascinating. It should give me a sec. Mm -hmm. and this calls to mind, too, just to add to this a little bit, that Joseph Campbell, the American uh, mythologist, he, I love the way he described art and the artist, the purpose of the artist. Mm. The, the, the purpose of the artist is to mythologize the present for future generations. So when I see things like this, where you're pointing towards, which is the, the defining art type of our time, I think is film, right? It's the most, yeah. uh, most popular, I believe, art form in the, in the modern age. Um, you see two of these films, like, like you mentioned, Fight Club and Matrix being uh, standout, most popular, most successful films of their time, both pointing to this, both alluding to or, or providing an allegory for this common theme. Uh, I think it points towards, you know, what's actually happening. Is that the artist actually, the reason they're so successful is because the artist tapped into something. They typed, tapped into the zeitgeist of the age. And that whether people, Often not, people don't necessarily cognitively understand why they're so engaged with this film, but it, it hits something deep in them. It, it, it really taps into a societal vein, I guess you might say. Exactly, and crucially, those two films um, have endured mm -hmm. um, in terms of their relevance. And in the case of The Matrix, like even increased mm -hmm. in terms of its relevance. The, the, the red pill is like the jumping off point for so many different based memes right um, yeah so on on fight club for example listen to this quote and yeah i like i like your point about um yeah art being it's almost like taking a temperature of a, a generation um and so i spoke about the fact that I, I felt this conversation was worth having because that thread um was retweeted, resonated, complimented, what have you. 
um, that resonance suggests a kind of a widely felt and a deeply held truth. Mm -hmm. um, the same it's the same with film. It's the same with art. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Fight Club. So, I see all this potential and I see it squandered. God damn it! An entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've, been, we've all been raised by television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact and we're very, very pissed off. Mm. So good. So, yeah, just speaks to the fact that this kind of um, institutional rot is causing, like, just affecting the quality and the character and the flavor of millennial life in so many different ways. And it's a trend. So it was niche for Gen Z. It's becoming mainstream. Well, it is, it's mainstream for millennials. Millennial malaise, I call it. It'll be worse for Gen Z, Gen Z unless we uh, transition to a Bitcoin standard before then. Um, but yeah, I, I just find that interesting that the, the generational point is we find kind of validation for it in, in art, um, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, I guess back to Weinstein, um, his perspective. So he, he can see the problems, but the fact that he kind of doesn't go far enough and he underestimates the extent of it and that that informs his view of the solution. Uh, yeah, like I said, he's very typically Gen Z. And I think earlier I said to you, um, if you're a doctor, then your diagnosis of the problem informs your treatment. Mm -hmm. To tie some other threads in from this conversation, if you can't even see the problems because you, you're kind of using like a Keynesian framework and holding certain things to be true, which aren't necessarily true, then you can't diagnose the problem accurately and therefore you can't even see the potential solution. Right. And I think that's another reason this conversation is valuable because in just kind of tying it all together, hopefully anyone would be able to see, um, just get a view of those uh, kind of fundamental problems um, and perhaps that might open their eyes, open their mind to the potential solution. So more specifically uh, to Weinstein's point, and I'm using his image just to stand in for Gen X now, um, his solutions all involve reforming the institutions essentially. It's all about electing the right person or class of people to the same institutions. And I think to some extent, it's just a time preference thing. Mm -hmm. Like we're not gonna build new institutions in the next five years. We have problems that the US has particular problems um, right now that need to be solved. 
This I think about a lot, and I believe that it's very underappreciated in the mental models of most, is that there is a relationship between a feedback loop, actually, specifically between man and his creations. Whether this is a, a physical tool, right? If we, if we construct a shovel in a certain way and we go out and we use this shovel a certain way for year after year, generation after generation over time, we actually, you know, Darwinian natural selection and evolution takes hold and we start to evolve differently, physically evolve differently, right? We become stronger leg or arm or shoulder, whatever it is. I think the, back to the Munger quote earlier, show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcomes. The socioeconomic structures and institutions we put ourselves into shape the character of those that populate them. Um, there's the, the classical experiment that I, I can't recall who ran it, but um, when they gave people authority over others, like to shock other people, um, and they, did, they, tr they tried different experiments. One was like if they're in the same room, if they're in different rooms, and the more division you created between people, if you put a uniform on them, they, they would uh, have less empathy towards the, the individuals being shocked. So all these things where they're creating division between uh, the authority and, and the, uh, whoever the authority is inflicted upon. Um, this, there, there, it's, it's, there's feedback though, because we're, with the individuals are the constituents of the social institution, but the rules and incentives of the social institution also shape the character of the individuals over time. So I almost tend to lean towards, we, we have to architect the system correctly first, like to think that, oh, we could kick Trump out of office and put someone else in and that will make things better. That is an endless fallacy that will never work. It will never work because, you know, uh, was it Lord Acton? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like whoever you put in that seat, um, or Hayek would say, when you concentrate that much power into that few hands, the power actually changes character. Changes character. It becomes so intoxicating and corrupting. It it, it attracts the most unscrupulous people in the world towards its its management. Um, so it's more a matter of thinking. And Jeff Booth is great about this. Thinking in systemic terms, we can't look at the individual necessarily that sits in that seat. We must look at the seat itself. How did they get there? What are the levers they're able to pull? Um, and that's where you should focus your effort and energy. Any, any effort we point towards the individual and say like, oh, if only Trump weren't there, if some other guy were there, that's wasted. It just doesn't work at all. And I think that's the illusion. This gets into like uh, Henry Hazlitt's book, economics in one lesson where he talks about the seen versus the unseen humans we're just so predisposed to focus on the scene the symptoms that we often ill ill consider or fail to consider altogether the unseen which is the system right the socioeconomic system in which we pour ourselves the ideas which interconnect us uh we fail to account for that so yeah i think that we we, we do ourselves more of a service considering people almost as the emergent properties of the system itself. And, and you can see this in Bitcoiners actually directly. It's like, I know people that I personally have experienced in my own life. I was a certain way, my character was a certain way 
operating under fiat currency complex, now that I'm deeply immersed in Bitcoin, I am different. My behavior is different. My, my character is different. My temperament's different. My time horizon is different. I've seen, I've seen that operate in one short span of one lifetime. I can only imagine what it does compounding across multiple lifetimes. So I, I don't, I, I'm kind of struggling to articulate it, but if I could get one lesson into the world, it'd be like, consider the unseen first. Like the scene is not what is, it's the unseen. Um, so yeah, and I think maybe, and that gets a little bit into the religious thing. It's like, that's sort of what religion's pointing towards, right? It's yeah. saying there's this, there's this invisible kingdom around us that is primary. And then everything you see worldly is sort of secondary to that. Yeah, it's an interesting one on religion. Um, I kind of think it's not a coincidence that religion has um, declined uh, as with the the fiat money money experiment um, yeah. has kind of progressed. I don't think it's just fiat money, but it's essentially like ideology has come uh, has begun to come above religion. Mm-hmm. Um, the government's point yeah and it's not just ideology either it's like um safety calls it um i fucking love science (laughs) scientism right yeah yeah scientism um and it's just like as more and more power aggregates at the national level which it has to do it deterministic it's a kind of deterministic progression towards greater and greater power centralization of power um, to kind of keep the fiat monetary experiment going. The kind of, the most meaningful way through which people believe they can affect the world is to put the right person in that seat rather than um, subscribing to these things that, I don't know, transcend. Um, by no means an expert on the religious sense, but I, I'm just tying the, the two things together. I, I don't think that's a, a coincidence. I agree. I, um, the the two ends of the spectrum being kind of like pure free market, minimized government, and totalitarian government. At the extreme end of that other spectrum, you can look at Soviet Russia or USSR. I mean, it started with banning religion, right? They were it was the government trying to usurp the ideology or faith, uh, the principles of devotion, right? They were trying to replace people's devotion towards faith and replace it with nationalistic devotion. Um, it really is a, a, an attempt to play God. And I think one of, the, one of the lines that got really popular in one of my pieces was, when governments play God, civilizations burn in hell. And I think that's exactly what keeps happening. Is we've, before Bitcoin at least, we could say that you know to control the money is to control the again the base layer operating system of human governance. So it's not that money's coming from government actually. Government comes from money. Mm-hmm. Government is uh, an institutional outgrowth of the money itself. But when that institution tries to bend back on its own operating system and control it, um, it really is playing God in the sphere of human action at least, and that just always has 
catastrophic consequences. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this would be a good point. We're beginning to talk about our perspective. I think this would be a good point to uh, describe. Okay, so we find Weinstein and Gen X explanations of the problem to be uh, to come up short. So, what's our perspective? Um, and at this point, I'll, I'll quote directly from the thread uh, because I said it succinctly here and ultimately this is what resonated with Bitcoiners. So, dear Eric Weinstein, regarding what's been happening in our society since the early 1970s, many of us see the same problems that you do but attribute them to a different cause. I want to give you a portal that will illuminate our ideas. I'm talking about Bitcoin. We agree that since the early 1970s, we've veered off from the course of progress into a world of increasing unreality. When I and other Bitcoiners hear you or your employer, Peter Thiel, talk about this period, your message finds strong resonance. However, while we agree about the problems, we seem to have a different view on the cause. You have spoken about a pause in innovation and discovery within physics, while we talk about the decoupling of our currencies from an objective standard of value. What we agree on is that since the early 1970s, our economy has been stagnating. So here's the portal, my attempt to explain the Bitcoin sense-making structure of the last 50 years. In decoupling our currencies from an objective standard of value, which they did in 1971, governments assumed full control of the value of our currencies. Doing so gave them, gave them the power to avert economic pain by a monetary tricks. When we flip this around, we can see that this rendered our institutions fully responsible for every instance of economic pain suffered from that moment on. This is clearly too big a burden to bear and creates a philosophy of, in, of intervention, usually via central banks. We propose that the sum of central bank intervention has been to insulate us from the consequences of our actions, both, both economic and cultural. The result is that thing we agree on, that our economy is stagnating and our culture is in decay. So, we can get a bit more specific later on in terms of how specifically central bank policy, um, what effects it produces and how it corrupts things. But just to kind of spend a bit of time at a meta level, to those new to Bitcoin, as I said, one of my aims for this conversation is to create like a tool, a resource, a, resource, a timeless resource um, to empower Bitcoiners to orange pill their friends. Um, so if anyone new to Bitcoin is listening, Bitcoiners perspective is obviously that all of the problems that we observe within society can be traced back to the way we do money. And this is best kind of um, exemplified by uh, two of the most prominent Bitcoin memes. So Bitcoin is kind of communicate in two different ways, right? We do long form like this, which is where we get the nuance. We optimize for nuance and detail. We also do memes, which we optimize for viral virality. Mm -hmm. um, and two of our memes are Bitcoin fixes this and fix the money, fix the world, right? So just drawing attention to the fact, memes are compressed information, right? Mm -hmm. You can compress information with, without kind of breaking it or, or losing much meaning. And essentially collapsed into those two memes 
are the fact that money is at the root of everything and that if you fix the money, if you, um, through some sly roundabout way, remove monetary policy from the hands of governments, you have a chance to fix these problems. And even just by doing that, you, you, you fix a lot of these problems in the world. Agreed completely. I, um, the meme itself, which we most digital age inhabitants think that this is like a new thing that was born on the internet, but this is actually from, I think originated with Richard Dawkins. I think he coined the term memetics and memes. And it's just the general idea that, um, actually information is the super organism in a way of which we are the vessels. So even when you die, you pass on your genes to your child, your genes pass on with almost perfect fidelity, right? They don't really change, they're almost immortal in a way. Like they, they, they vary very marginally at the edges, but like 99.99% of your genes pass on with perfect fidelity, generation after generation. They, they reassort themselves and recombine. So some of your genes and some of your uh, baby mama's genes will mix in your child and it'll be a whole different makeup of person. But the individual genes themselves are actually um, an organism in and unto themselves in a way. And they, they govern, again, talk about governing action. Almost everything you do is to optimize for your genes. That's the reason we, we feel uh, the need for altruism and, 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 and reciprocity with, with people in our, our local circles of trust because we're actually programmed to protect our genes, right? Which would be, which would be our family and those that we live close to typically, kind of our tribe and, and our family. And um, ideas, you know, the, the movement of ideas, you could think of not only between life forms where we're passing genes from generation to generation, experimenting with new combinations, to adapt at the individual level such that it benefits uh, the collective, right? But it's also occurring, there's a mirror of that occurring in the marketplace. Whereas if we discover a new way of doing things, then the entrepreneur has an incentive to sell it back into the marketplace. So the meme on the internet, I think it's just become such a big deal because we finally have a forum that allows us to move information in a way that is reflective of the potence of of the meme i guess we just we, it's a free-flowing informational environment and um and there's some classical wisdom in there too you know the old pictures worth a thousand words kind of thing now you take yeah. a picture that embodies a certain mood or emotion or a scene from a movie that has all this other context behind it and you take that little picture or video and then you put a few other words to it or, or other uh, I guess, curations to make it fit whatever, attach it to the narrative you're trying to connect it to, whether it's Bitcoin or whatever. And then it carries a so much punch all in that one little snippet. And therein lies the virality, right? It can just, everyone can relate to it. They can beam it around the world instantly. Um, so it's not just a joke. It's not, the memes are not just some internet joke. They are a very powerful communication tool. This, yeah, people would be amazed to find out how much work the US military has done on memes. That's right. Yeah, Bitcoiners won't be amazed because we get it. And for many reasons, um, that's one of the, like even if this was a fair fight, right? 
So I happen to believe that Bitcoin is inevitable. The reason that it still has merit to educate people is that you can get more people onto the life raft um, sooner. Mm. And it's very, very meaningful uh, in terms of, as you said, the way it can change you. One of the reasons I am like, I think Bitcoin will win. So I think Bitcoin is inevitable because it's the hardest money that has ever been produced. And there is a trend towards throughout history that there has always been and there will always be a trend towards adoption of the hardest money on a long enough time horizon. Um, but even if so, I happen to think Bitcoin is inevitable. But even if Bitcoin, um, even if it was a fair fight, I would still bet on Bitcoin because of memes. Mm. Like people really underestimate their power. It's like the GameStop thing. Um, it ba- like memes bankrupted at least one hedge fund. Right. Um, and that was just like one subreddit. Um, like the decentralized army of bitcoiners which just through really low effort um mostly really low effort uh, and just repeated conversation come up with these with memes communicate through memes fix the money fix the world have fun staying poor and all that stuff Mm. um and they just propagate all throughout the internet and the reason that this happens in such a decentralized way is skin in the game. Once you have Bitcoin, <laughs> you get involved with the memes. Right. Um, and I suspect that one of the things the US military has found when it comes to memes is that you can't, um, if you're some centralized authority, uh, you can't just generate a sort of meme warfare offensive. It has to be decentralized. Yeah. It has to come from like the wisdom of the crowd because the the virality is like it's like evolution it selects for the best ones and they're the ones that propagate um kind of like an meritocracy or something yeah it's just another reason to be bullish bitcoin um i always ask people when i'm when i have enough time and when i'm trying to educate them about bitcoin where do you think money originated Uh, and most people don't know. The most common answers I've found are like China or ancient Greece, which I think are reflective of like, um, I think paper notes were first used in China and coins were first used in Greece. So I, I think it's like, yeah. First using was the Lydian Empire, which was I think now in modern day Turkey, but right there close to Greece. And they used it. Uh, I think it was the the electrum, right? The composite yeah. silver yeah. naturally occurring uh, silver and gold compound. Um, but essentially, the answer is money originated everywhere, spontaneously, mm-hmm. repeatedly, um, in every society that advanced to become complex and wealthy throughout history. Um, in fact, it was so ubiquitous and so consistent an invention that it makes sense to say that money is intrinsic to us. Mm-hmm. It's not like the printing press or something where it's an invention with a specific origin. It's intrinsic to us and the way we communicate through the exchange of value uh, as 
cooperative social animals. So money has three functions. It's a store of value. Uh, it holds its value through time so that you can spend it later in or at a different point in time and space. It's a medium of exchange. Uh, it facilitates trade. Uh, it takes one side of every trade uh, in order to allow more trade to happen. Uh, and a unit of account, the basis for a pricing system. Um, and yeah, a kind of cognitive tool. As I've said, as, as it takes one side of every trade, uh, it's much easier to compare the relative value of things. A measuring stick for value, right? Like we, we use inches and centimeters to measure height. We use money to measure value. So money gets invented uh, and typically it, these uh, primitive societies tend to use whatever local materials they can. But over time, there's such, so there's such a thing as good money and bad money and everything in between. And over time, what you find is that good money sticks around, whereas bad money gets kind of outcompeted and uh, demonetized loses its value the reason being it's just this free market process of trial and error and it's ultimately people's self-interest so if money is your store of value and you use better money than someone else then your value will hold through time mm -hmm. you uh, will be able to make long-term longer-term decisions better decisions over time pass on wealth to your children um and just generally uh wow. prosper exactly um in terms of the other functions if you have better money then um you can trade with more people uh, in terms of a medium of exchange because uh, more people will accept it um more opportunities to trade yeah and in terms of a unit of account so this is something that your the number zero on bitcoin piece kind of um nailed home for me um if you use better money as your unit of account you can assess opportunities better than the next person and so you will make better decisions and essentially what this means is that at both an individual and a group level an individual who uses better money will prosper those who adopt worse money will um become poorer until they adopt the better money and at a group level, groups which use better money will outcompete those who use worse money. And so it's just this continual process of, in, of trial and error, powered by something just completely constant throughout history, which is human self-interest. And through that, we move towards better and better money, and this put us on a trajectory in the physical world towards gold, and using gold as money. So why is gold the best medium of exchange store of value unit of account? Essentially, you can look at the periodic table. Uh, in fact, you, you can do it kind of a, a bottom-up way and a top-down way. Mm -hmm. Top-down way, uh, and this isn't the way monetary history moves forward, but it provides validation for gold being the best money. If you look at a periodic, periodic table and you attempt to decide, okay, of all these elements, what should I use as money? If you disregard anything uh, which is a gas at room temperature or um, normal habitable temperatures, 
Um, anything that is toxic um, or poisonous, um, anything which reacts chemically with air or water, anything which is too abundant and therefore isn't suitable to uh, serve as a store of value uh, through time because it's not scarce enough. I think it's those things. You're left with, oh, and anything that isn't so scarce that it was only discovered in like the 18th century or something, uh, which rhodium and palladium fall into. So if you dis disregard all of those things, you're left with three metals. Uh, no, sorry, platinum, silver, and gold. Platinum's melting point is too high for early human furnaces, which prevented people from um, turning it into like uniform coins and tokens um, of, yeah, of uniform spending power. Which leaves you with the two widely used monetary metals, silver and gold. Gold is just that bit more scarce and it and silver reacts more with air, I believe. Which, as we said, if you were to study the periodic table, you would arrive at gold. Um, but as we said, that's not how monetary history moves forward. But another way that you can va validate um, gold being natural money is to just kind of observe all of the kind of observe the fact that all of the great civilizations throughout history have used gold as money. So. Mayans, the Aztecs, uh, the Egyptians, the Romans, the ancient Greeks, all of these great ancient civilizations used gold as money. And so, something I was thinking recently, this is a bit of an aside, but it's not that like they got to a level of prosperity where they, they kind of, you know, um, became smart enough to choose gold. Gold came first. I think this points to a point uh, speaks to a point you were making. Without gold, without that base money, rock solid base money, you can't create the institutions, the prosperity, the wealth needed that supports a great civilization. Right. Um, so, in the natural world, in the physical world, gold is money. <clears throat> but as I believe you mentioned earlier to me, um, gold's lack of portability led to its centralization in central banks. So essentially, I think this was throughout the 19th century, um, 19th and possibly early 20th. There was a, a trend towards centralization of uh, gold holdings, the population's gold holdings. First of all, in like uh, commercial banks, I believe. But then at some point um, throughout history, in, in each of the great powers, societies, the government decreed that, or the government, at first it was kind of a bit softer. They kind of just asked to call it into the central bank and in exchange we will give you these notes which are more portable and uh, if you want you can redeem them for gold at the same time um, when you come into a into the bank but what that did was that centralization of gold gave central banks gave, gave governments a monopoly on money 
-hmm. And what that allowed them to do was when the next crisis hit, which uh, for many countries was World War I, they were able to increase the supply of paper notes in circulation without increasing their gold holdings. So it, they essentially uh, inflated, increased their own purchasing power at the expense of the holders of the currency. Mm -hmm. And once this was done the first time, so this is referred to as going off the gold standard, right? When you decouple your currency from an objective standard of value, which is, you know, the free market value of gold. Or, or even just being a fractional reserve on a gold standard, right? There's many banks that maintained a gold standard across history, but they started issuing more paper than their gold reserves could justify. Therefore, they're running a fractional reserve. And every increment in that fraction is fraud, basically, because it's you're, you yeah. have a promise to redeem for real money, but that promise cannot be fulfilled uh, by the gold reserves. Exactly. So essentially, the, to simplify it, the 20th century is best understood as a, um, a progression away from money having an objective standard of value, um, which obviously limits the power of governments, towards money having zero objective standard of value and governments having complete control of the money supply. So it began with the centralization of gold. I think that was in the 19th century and early 20th century. It accelerated with World War I when a number of countries went off the gold standard. Another key event was the Great Depression when I think a few countries went off it and never went back on it. Then um, after World War II, there was still some semblance of a tie between national currencies and gold because the US dollar was tied to gold and uh, citizens couldn't redeem their US dollar notes for gold, but foreign governments could. And then we get to 1971, which is the point in history that both Bitcoiners and uh, Eric Weinstein point to as being the moment that everything changed. And that is the moment that national currencies were completely decoupled from gold, um, thus beginning this modern era of, uh, float, of currencies which float and fluctuate freely in value against one another. Um, yeah, that's, so that's a kind of whistle-stop tour of monetary history. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Um, great high-level overview, and I'll just add a few points here. So one thing that came to, I guess, populate my worldview more fully recently are the importance of standards, actually. Um, we we gain efficiency again we're, we're we're trading with one another to increase our aggregate productivity which is another way of saying we can accomplish greater results with the same efforts or we can be more energy efficient working in concert than we can in isolation standards radically enhance this productivity gain we get through trade because if you think about um I mean, even something like the width of a rail track, right? If every producer in the world knows that they can produce and standardize to this one width of a rail track, 
then they don't need to call and ask how why they don't need to constantly check the specifications and re-architect the production process to make sure it matches the wheel track. Or you could you could come into modernity with something like the internet, right? We standardize to these protocols, HTTP, TCP, IP. The market just selects this common protocol that we can all interoperate upon. And that that standard becomes it actually becomes rather ossified as a as a core operational protocol. And because everyone can just, without thinking about it, trust the standard, they release all this energy to focus on other things, basically. So we're like constantly seeking standards to rely upon, trust minimized standards to rely upon that free us up to um, channel our energies towards higher valued aims. And this gets to, it's another North Whitehead quote that I will try and paraphrase. It says that it is, common commonly believed that mankind progresses by thinking before he acts but it's actually the precise opposite man advances civilization by increasing the number of important operations he can execute without thinking about them so it's the yeah more, the more reliable I wondered, where, I wondered where i'd heard his name before and that quote um, made me realize it's um, nick sabo's essay blockchains and social scalability he quotes right. Yeah, that exact quote there. Yeah. The point that through like abstracting away the need to think about something, you free people up to worry about the next thing. Yes, which creates prosperity and wealth because people are focused on solving the next problem That's as right. opposed to like going around in circles looking after this first That's one. Right. You could think of a standard in in a way as like a semi permanent solution to a problem. It's like, we don't need to talk about this problem anymore because everyone just operates on this standard. And then yeah. recently, Nick Carter dropped this short little piece where he makes the point that gold, even in its raw form, was kind of useless as money. It wasn't until we converted it. I mean, there was there's store value function there, don't get me wrong, but as to, to graduate to medium of exchange functionality, it was actually us stamping it into coinage and bars into standard weights and measures that gave it this utility, this transactional utility that really made it money. So he has this line in there that says, to monetize is to standardize. Mm. So I'm just thinking about that lately is, you know, we have money, which is, I, I would argue is emergent, as you said, in any society. So every society needs to trade to increase their energy efficiency or productivity. Uh, and my argument is that in any society you choose, basically the most tradable or the most liquid asset in that economy is money, pretty much. It just, and it, you can see this in a, in a prison where they're trading cigarettes, right? Cigarettes are money in that little micro economy. Um, but when we, it, it is unlocked through standardization, I guess is kind of the point. Like it's another, it's another social utility like the width of a, a rail car or HTTP when you can standardize to one form of money, we don't need to think about every trade as much. I don't need to weigh the gold you're giving me. I don't need to assay its value. I can just trust that this is a standard unit. Um, and in that scope, so, so we could say that standardizing unlocks productivity, basically. So we're constantly looking to discover new things, uh, sort of in the dynamic, area or just figuring things out in the entropy, I guess you would say. And then once we figure something out, we want everyone to standardize to the best solution. Then we can go figure out the next thing. 
and then standardize that. And civilization is these layers of standardization over time, right? That's what we are. That's what the rule of law is and et cetera, et cetera. So Bitcoin in that way is like, it's incredibly valuable because there's standardization built into it, right? It is the ultimate um, standard, if you will. It's 21 million that doesn't change as a defined subunit. You can audit the global supply. You can transact it anywhere. It's an immutable or unchangeable standard, basically a protocol. Um, and I guess the the last point I had on this was the the, the old um, uh, Rothschild quote: "But give me the power to issue a nation's currency. I care not who makes it laws." It's like so, he who makes he who holds the gold. Again, money being the base layer operating system of humanity makes the rules. The custodian of the money makes the rules effectively. So to monopolize money or the standardization of money is really to monopolize rule making or to monopolize human action. So that's what that's why I think it's so radical when you see Bitcoin in that context that we we the I think you had a line in here somewhere where it's like gold is the game humans have been playing across all of history, whether we know it or not. Um, the story of gold is the story of man kind of thing. That's the one. Yeah. And now there's a new story. Bitcoin is a brand new story or a brand new chapter or, or a brand new book in the series, whatever your analogy is. It's something that just breaks this whole thing and, and starts us anew. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's digital ultimately um yeah the beginning of a the the base layer of a, a digital civilization in the same way mm -hmm. that gold is the necessary base layer for all of the great civilizations of all analog uh, civilizations exactly of history yeah um yeah one example and then a specific implication of bitcoin for what we're speaking about there so um this this may be zabo's uh example that I can't remember, but uh, the law essentially and property rights. Um, what essentially happened with, um, I believe it was the Magna Carta was the first uh, example of this in the 1100s or the 11th century, I can't remember, um, where essentially the, um, the responsibility for looking after one's private property got abstracted away to the central authority, uh, the crown. And the crown essentially says, okay, we'll now uh, keep these records of property rights and enforce them uh, via our monopoly over violence. Yeah. Um, and obviously what that does for the individual is it frees you up to stop worrying about uh, your kind of physical safety, physical security of yeah your property so that you can worry about the next thing that's right and what that frees you up to do is generate greater prosperity for yourself your community and your society yeah. across society across a nation that um that is very profound and it was it's been profound given enough time um around the world because a lot of property rights around the world find their origin in the magna carta which was uh uh originally only enforceable in England. Um, I guess as an aside, 
relevant to what we were just saying about Bitcoin. Um, I think it's very significant that Bitcoin is global by design. Yeah. I mean, it's actually like intergalactic by design, not intergalactic, interplanetary yeah. by design. Um, the same for everyone, uh, which is a big deal. And then, yeah, in terms of an implication of, of Bitcoin um, and what it, an example of something that, that it abstracts, think about how much human ingenuity is devoted towards trying to beat inflation. Right. All of these, we talk about the macro guys, all of that effort, like the best and brightest within society going to finance. Right. All as a way to just really just attempt to beat inflation. Right. Or benefit from it, yeah. Yeah, or benefit from it within a financialized economy. Yeah. Just, I guess Wall Street's a bad example because they're specifically looking to get very rich. The average person is just looking to keep their head above water. Right. They want to know that they want to be able to plan long term. Um, and yeah, even uh, for retirement or even beyond their own life and intergenerationally. And having an inflationary monetary paradigm means that that is very, very hard to do. It's a great demand on our time. Lots of people try to educate themselves about investing. And the only reason they need to do that is because, as we said earlier, one of the assumptions uh, that Bitcoin has challenged is that our monetary paradigm is not benign. Right. It changes our behavior. It demands our time, demands our attention. We, we have to try to beat inflation. Um, and one of the ways that affects behavior is the number of people who um, buy houses, um, who put more of their wealth than they might otherwise into their house, because it, that your house tends to be inflation, house prices tend to be inflation. So it, it's like the leaking of that store of value use case, resulting in, which is one of the functions of money, resulting in the monetization of that's right. other assets That's like right. houses um so yeah inter interesting stuff and yeah just if you speak about bitcoin long enough you start getting pretty galaxy brain quite quickly right i think that's why people love your stuff <laughs> galaxy brain greed love i was already a bit galaxy brain before but bitcoin definitely threw a lot of fuel on the fire <laughs> Uh, just to speak to a couple of points you just made there. So in the lens of standards, then we could think of property rights as kind of the standards of civilization, right? It gave us this means of interacting and, well, I guess you'd say property rights coupled with the rule of law. So we had recourse to this nonviolent means of dispute resolution. If we disagree on who owns what property, we can go take recourse to the law instead of taking pitchforks to each other. Um, that reshaped, we, we talked earlier about how tools and the way we organize ourselves, the systems we organize ourselves will then reshape human action. That reshapes human action clearly by disincentivizing violence, right? Violence just is not as rewarding under a system of, of well-protected private property rights. Um, and that's the reason we can all go and sit in a movie theater today, you know, with a bunch of strangers and feel comfortable. That probably wasn't the case, I don't know, a thousand years ago. Like you're around a bunch of strangers. There's not a stability, I guess, socioeconomic stability from 
the system of private property rights, um, it, it's decivilizing in a way. Yeah, cert certainly not at the scale we see. Like, um, yeah. you could go anywhere in the world and go to a cinema and you'd, you'd feel comfortable there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it, yeah. It's, not, it's not, clearly it's not ideal, right? We still have, there are still incentives to violence that I think Bitcoin mitigates even further, even exponentially further. That gold helped mitigate, the systems built on gold helped mitigate, but Bitcoin takes it to a new level. Um, and to your point about everyone competing to outpace inflation, this is such a perverse situation because not only, so it's crowding out productive investment, right? If you can't, uh, if inflation is eating you at 15% a year, plus there's cost of compliance on top of that, plus there's cost of taxation on top of that. It's like, even if you have an innovation that can contribute to productivity, you're crowded out by all of these costs to, to start a business effectively. So we're, we're dissipating innovation through inflation. And then to your point about it being kind of like a leaky power reservoir or something. And it just, the, the, it, we, it's demonetizing the store value function of fiat. So it's monetizing other assets basically as, as reliably scarce stores of value. The home, just the, which is most people's savings account under a fiat currency regime, when you bid up home prices beyond natural demand levels, you're actually exacerbating homelessness because now what's, what is actually a durable consumer good, the home is not actually an investment. I know we're all programmed to think that way, but it's really just a durable consumer good. You build it, you live in it, you gotta maintain it, et cetera. Um, when you start buying those just to shelter yourself from inflation, it has a centralizing effect in that it, it's eviscerating the middle class, right? The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And, and in this case, quite literally priced out of homes. Like it is, you're taking homes off the market that would otherwise be used to satisfy demand for shelter that are now being used to satisfy demand as, as protection from inflation. Yeah, and um, again, speaks to the millennial point and the reason that so many Gen X don't get it. Um, Gen X got into the housing market early uh, in, you know, soon after the fiat monetary paradigm began right. um and millennials are, are trying to get on the housing ladder when those house prices have already been bid up mm -hmm. but again because these things are a trend and not uh you know anything that's going to stop without the paradigm fundamentally changing it's going to be worse for each successive generation which is why, like, so many, so many people have an inkling that something is wrong, something is off. You know, there's that subreddit, um, late stage capitalism. We're not in late stage capitalism. We're in late stage central banking. That's right. And, you know, before I found Bitcoin, in terms of my, like, looking for the source of the problem, um, I... I was like in US terms, I would have been like a Bernie bro. <laughs> in uh, in the UK, we had Jeremy Corbyn. He was a guy. He, he kind of he's left wing. He's outside the system. He he points at the system and says, "This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong." Without stepping outside the system, 
and really getting to the, the root of the problem. Uh, we, and I think that's the reason that these people are attractive is because they, they speak to the fact that it's BS, but the reason they're tolerated by the establishment and Bernie hasn't been kicked out of the Democratic Party um, is because they don't actually rock the boat. Like all of their solutions are still fiat monetary dependent solutions. Right. Um, and yeah, this is relevant to a few points so far, but the point of this is, is kind of like millenn- uh, Gen X don't really get it. Uh, uh, the depth of millennial dis- disaffection and therefore the kind of uh, severity of the solutions we're willing to um, entertain. Um, yeah, and, and, and yeah, just re- reaffirming the point that the monetary system is not benign. It changes behavior. It's eviscerating the middle class. It's making life, quality of life, progressively worse for each successive generation. And, well, that's that, I guess. Right. And there's no hope without Bitcoin, frankly, right? We're... Exactly. And, um, yeah, going back to Weinstein, he, so I have, um, he has commented on um, Bitcoin directly and kind of indirectly. Um, and so someone asked him on Twitter, I am, I am, this was probably a Bitcoiner. Uh, Eric Weinstein, what are your thoughts about 1971 also being the year America moved off the gold standard and how that relates to any of the WTF-ness that has happened since? And his response was, folks attached to the gold standard get this wrong in my opinion. The root cause of the 71 to 73 shift in the structure of the economy is upstream of our going off the gold standard. We went off the standard because of change in the nature of innovation, science and technology. Um, So gold standard advocates see this as a morality play. We're paying a price for going off the gold standard. That's not it. We built growth dependent institutions with, with unsustainable growth needs. We had to go off the gold standard to defer broad institutional collapse until now. So growth um, meaning they were debt fueled, right? They were financed with debt that created an interest rate, which was the hurdle rate that had to be cleared for it to be a viable investment. And that is due to the fractional reserve model we moved on to, which ultimately culminated in going off the gold standard. So I think he's wrong here. Well, I think, um, I think he's aware of the monetary stuff. He just doesn't see it as the, the core, the thing at the root. As he says, he thinks a change in the nature of innovation, science and technology is at the root, um, is upstream in his words. Um, and for me, two things. One is just that point that um, money, is the, money is the base, money is the root, everything. Physics happens within academic institutions and corporations. Those things are downstream of the money. Mm-hmm. Um, second is the decision to go off the gold standard. So we built growth dependent institutions with unsustainable growth needs. So we had to go off the standard to defer broad, defer broad institutional collapse until now. Now, in the context of the generational point and the fact that each generation's life standard, life quality of life, standard of living, is getting progressively worse. Quite frankly, if you're 
if your institutions fail, let them fail. Yes. Don't defer broad institutional collapse until 50 years later when it's your grandkids' problem. Right. Deal with it right then and there and don't try to kick the can down the road because now it's worse than it would have been otherwise. Right. So I, I want to parse this actually. Growth dependent institutions. What specifically does he mean by this? I think so in the, um, is it the Ted Cruz podcast? I think it is. Um, he talks about, um, so this being in, intertwined with the social contract. So if you think he uses the example of like a professor, um, a university professor probably has through the career, 20 to 30 students, most of which, themselves hope to become professors which is only possible if the institution grows so he says this was possible for institutions for a time because universities went from educating eight percent of the population to educating around 50 percent of the population mm. so that was that was possible for a time and the institution was built on the idea that this would be possible forever um, it's also true within um, corporations. He, he gives the, a similar example about um, how you, you want to move up to become partner in a law firm or a medical practice and whatever. But this is only possible if the company is growing. And when the growth runs out in the economy, the growth runs out in the institution and the social contract is broken. Hmm. Interesting. I believe that's his perspective. Okay, I just was thinking that because economic growth, if that's the form of growth we're talking about, it doesn't actually run out. Uh, or we don't know, we haven't discovered, frankly, the limits to economic growth. We don't know where that is. But what, we, what does happen is that a particular version of a solution, whether it's an institution or a tool, becomes irrelevant or useless over time. Something else replaces it. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to understand how growth dependent institutions would cause us to go off of the gold standard. I'm, I'm not identifying the causal connection there. No. So I don't know about the causal. Well, yeah, I don't know about the causal collect the causal relationship between uh, stopping growth and going off the gold standard from his perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, he talks about the fact that, so he, he kind of says, we've gone crazy because growth ran out. And instead of um, real growth, we've replaced it with fake growth uh, and just kind of hollowed out um, our institutions and our economy um, in order to like preserve the illusion of growth. Well, the, here's where I would drill in and say that the, the reason growth ran out, again, there's no, no known natural limit to economic growth, but by saddling ourselves in debt, which fiat currency has encouraged us to do, the interest burden on that debt crowds out investment, which crowds out growth. So the consequence is still in the money. It's still in the character of the money that crowded out investment, that crowded out growth. Yeah, agreed. I, I think 
it, it just goes back to the point. I'm sure he could do a better job of articulating it, but it just goes back to the point for me that um, innovation within physics is downstream of the money. It's the money that's at the root, and innovation within physics is downstream. Um, Agreed. Money is it? Money is the source water source waters of everything humans do, right? Including theoretical physics. He does say something interesting here about um, the relationship between money and physics. This is, see, this is why I want to invite him into the conversation. Mm -hmm. He needs to square this circle for us, uh, basically. He's a smart guy. He, he's intellectually honest, but this just feels like a, an oversight. Uh, or a, like your, your experiences, your perspective are, are coloured and, and weighted towards your own experiences. And he's someone who's kind of like, uh, I don't know whether he's worked in academia. I think he has. His brother yeah. certainly does. Um, but he, he seems closely related to it. Um, so yeah, maybe that's what's going on. But So someone said to him, some legend, Become one of us Bitcoiners, Eric. And he said, no. He said, no, your job is to liberate physics, mine to liberate you. Presumably some of you understand the peril we're in. You can't stay here. I didn't mention geometric unity, which is his theory of, um, I don't know, fundamental physics. Uh, kind of like a potential successor to Einstein's theory, I think. You know, these general theories, mm -hmm. I believe. Theory of um, Yeah. I didn't mention geometric uni unity to the world from the early, mid-80s until 2013. Let's see if the Satoshi Collective can go that long. Bitcoiners are the logical saviors of physics, and post-Einsteinian space travel and local digital conservation laws are our best hopes. Can you, you know, so that's kind of wishy-washy. This is why I don't think, I mean, he must have thought about it because uh, it's very interesting. And his boss and good friend is Peter Thiel, yeah. um, who gets it and has thought very deeply about the problem of money uh, when building PayPal, I'm sure. Um, so, yeah, th this is kind of where my clarity on his perspective runs out. Um, you can see he's acknowledging some relationship there between physics uh, and, and Bitcoin and money uh but to me your job is to liberate physics isn't that an acknowledgement that you know if bitcoin can liberate physics then isn't aren't you acknowledging that bitcoin's at the root i wonder what that means that's very mysterious um i assume it would relate somehow relate to bennett uh to bitcoin's connection to energy markets perhaps quite possibly where if we where if bitcoin is you know, indeed, as many of us believe that as a bounty program on energy efficient innovation, the more efficiently we can harness energy via solar or whatever efficient source, nuclear, whatever it may be, um, the more we would, quote unquote, liberate physics, basically. Yeah, I mean, I took it to mean like physics, the academic discipline. Mm. Um, well, it could equally be either of those. And as somebody with, you know, a reputation for intellectual honesty and a first principles thinker with a, an audience who naturally think like him, which is why they watch his stuff. Um, 
I just love to invite him into the conversation and for him to properly explore it because Bitcoin's going mad this year, right? We all know that. I, I still think we're in this cyclical, um, I still think the price of it is cyclical um, and will be for a while. Um, and with that bring, brings increased attention. So I, I'd love to, to see him do a few episodes with prominent Bitcoiners specifically. Um, he's interviewed like crypto enthusiasts and blockchain enthusiasts, but um, not Bitcoiners as far as I know. And I, I'd love to see, I'd love to see Sailor talk to him. I'd love to talk to him. I'd love um, safety to go on the portal uh, and yourself as well. Um, he, he, not to get too off on a tangent, but he did have some connection to a shitcoin project. I want to say EOS. Is that right? Oh, right. Didn't know that. I think I've seen him speak once about EOS. I don't know. I don't know many of the details, but just to, just to add some more context there, he may have had divergent incentives from Bitcoin at one point. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we've laid out this framework about, um, you know, the Bitcoiners perspective on what's going wrong with the world and what the solution might be at a kind of meta level. And we've dived in a little bit, but I think it makes sense to apply this framework in a few different ways to um, kind of qualitatively explore exactly how the money problems with the money are causing the, the observable problems like on the street in society and within our lives and for me the, the most interesting one is that central bank intervention robs society of its course correction mechanism mm -hmm. you've spoken about feedback and how this is ongoing mm -hmm. um and the, the way i think about it is when you hit a period of economic difficulty you are getting feedback from some economic uh, phenomenon that something's not quite right. Right. But the, the problem is when a problem manifests itself in a, in a national economy and the manager of the national economy has this lever of monetary policy, rather than face reality and solve the underlying problem, they turn on the money taps. Now, the underlying problem could be anything. It could be uh, you might not be producing uh, young people, young workers through your education system with the right skills to thrive, to prosper, to solve the problems of the day. It might be that you've underinvested under in a specific area of infrastructure, uh, that your transport links aren't good enough, mm -hmm. um, that your values are, are off. You become greedy or or you've taken your eye off the ball and complacent. When you hit a period of economic difficulty, when your economy goes into recession, as they say, the Keynesian assumption is that the right thing to do is for the government to step in and do those things we spoke about earlier. Uh, stimulate consumer spending, encourage investment, bolster confidence. They do this through interest rates, the suppression of interest rates, uh, and driving those down, which has its own effect, and quantitative easing, uh, as well as like buying toxic assets, buying bad assets to remove them from companies' balance sheets. 
essentially what this does is it, it plasters over the cracks in your economy rather than solving stru the structural issues. And over the course of decades, as I've said, you've robbed society of its course correction mechanism. So you might be way off course in terms of your cultural priorities, your values that have emerged, um, and anything, any economic phenomenon that the national economic manager has control over might be completely off. But you haven't, for decades, you haven't confronted any of those things. Yeah. No, it's a great point. Um, and I always point this back to, I mean, this is a Talabian notion related to skin in the game, that he says that pain and information are indistinguishable, actually. It's, we can think of information itself, it is basically the resolution to entropy. So it's, there, was, there was uncertainty there before, and then we encountered the uncertainty and learned something as a result. So we changed our, either our behavior or our structure or whatever it is to deal with that. What was formerly uncertainty is now a certainty. It's another um, uh, piece to our model, basically a piece to our mental model, a piece to our map, another uh, unshading of unexplored territory kind of thing. And when you take away the pain, right, through quantitative easing or analgesic or whatever, you're actually disrupting the ability to adapt. The, the organism or the organization cannot respond to the changes and conditions where it went wrong. It's not able to learn from its own mistakes. Um, the, the cost of those mistakes in a central bank economy, at least, are now externalized onto society via inflation. And so you end up with these, you know, ineffective bureaucracies, unaccountable to their P&L, zombie companies, all these things. And it's all because we're, I guess you could argue that it's well-intentioned, right? The government needs to step in and save the day and make sure everyone's got their band-aids and, you know, change the rules a little bit so we don't misstep again. But what you're actually doing is just delaying and exacerbating the inevitable volatility because there will be a course correction back to reality at some point. You cannot fool economic reality or otherwise. So um, here again is that concept of iatrogenics where the central bank or the government is trying to be a quote unquote healer, but it is in fact, assuming that's the ostensible aim, by the way, I'm not arguing or agreeing that's the actual intention. Like I said earlier, I'm not entirely sure if this is the greatest <laughs> criminal enterprise in human history or just the most misguided. I'm not sure which one. Um, can only really be one of the two, I think, maybe a combination of both. But it, it undoubtedly uh, is harmful to the adaptivity of individuals and civilization across time. And you know, adaptivity is longevity. You cannot adapt to a universe that's pervaded by entropy, then you will fail over time. Yeah, so, yeah, brings me perfectly to my next point. The kind of um, emergent consequence of this is that society becomes insulated from consequence. We're, it's like we're robbed of agency. We're, we're like toddlers in a playground. Mm. Um, we don't bump up against reality. So for decade after 
decade after decade, we don't correct course. This has like both economic and cultural implications. Economically, um, it results in increasing fragility because all those problems that you've just plastered over are still there. And like the kind of um, the forest fire analogy, when you um, suppress the little ones, all you end up getting is a huge one in the long term. So the like action of the central bank become, becomes a central point of failure. Like what, what I think will become the last time that the central bank will ever try to um, raise interest rates. Was it 2018? They tried to raise in interest rates and the stock market fell off a cliff and they were like, Oh no shit. We'll, we'll, we'll forget that. We'll, uh, we'll lower them again. The infamous dovish pivot where they said, yeah, exactly that. They're, yeah, they're out of bullets, essentially. I mean, they, they, they're not out of bullets, it's just that they only have one weapon left. Um, so that economically, the, the central bank, action of the central bank becomes a central point of failure, which is, in, in other words, in, your economy becomes increasingly fragile. But then culturally, it has implications too. Because essentially, you can pursue, if, if your cultural priorities are off, that will result in poor decisions. And if you make poor decisions as society, you won't prosper. Um, and it will cause all sorts of problems and there'll be some sort of reset, right? If you don't have that feedback mechanism, you can just veer completely off course, decade after decade. And I, to me, I see that as like a, a root at the root of like wokeness. I don't think wokeness is like predicated on horrible values most of the time, but the, the strength of it, how far it has been taken, how extreme it's become, how divergent it is from um, traditional values, um, how it kind of its proponents are willing to entertain the idea that like the entirety of human history in Western civilization is evil. Um, things don't get that far. You don't go that far, of course, when you have, you know, an economic feedback mechanism. You only get that far, of course, when you remove that for me. Right. Yeah. So it's when we break this anchor to economic reality, everything becomes more polarized, right? think about uh, the, the power that Wall Street has over our economies. That's uh, a huge chunk of that goes away in terms of uh, when we move beyond a inflationary monetary paradigm because there's no, as Saylor says, hurdle rate to beat. Right. Um, you literally store your wealth in sound money and watch your purchasing power increase over time. Don't worry about it. Right. Just participate, just live your life, participate in your local economy, yeah. um, live a rich life. Yeah. Until it's matured and then all of a sudden there are incentives for value investing again, right? Because it won't be accruing that much. Yeah, exactly. Pierre Rashad talks about how um, he sees a future where um, investing moves from like global passive 
to lo to local active. Mm, yeah. So the 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 conventional wisdom right now, right, is like invest in a, a, a stock market ETF, right. so that you're not trying to pick stocks and what have you. Um, but then that's a problem in itself because then those things become monetized, and then there's no price discovery happening right. on the underlying companies. Which that's that Mike Green's point. Um, who debated Nick Carter? Um, so that's what hard money is, by the way. It is your passive. It's a it's an index to passive global productivity, right? I'm holding a money that's of a relatively fixed mm. supply. We're creating more goods and services in the world. If there's a, assuming we're at a global hard money, right? Bitcoin standard. That money is increasing in purchasing power in tandem with global GDP growth. So it's like a non-counterparty global index fund investment. So I would say, I would argue that the index funds we have today yeah, a very interesting framing. are again a product of us compromising mm. that aspect of money, right? We've broken, we've gotten away from holding gold uh, at, at, as providing that service. We have all these regional fiat currencies. So now we have the age of the index fund with this global passive investing. And that creates its own distortions, right? Where people are allocating into index funds based on market cap weighting. So they're literally just buying them because they're big. And then all the companies beneath that are then incentivized to get too big to fail or die trying. So it doesn't even become a game of satisfying wants anymore. It's just playing, playing the political game to get as big as possible and hopefully get a bailout when things get dicey. So we've been talking about the, the root cause of the problems in our world being the money uh, and in tracing these things back to the root back to the moving away from the gold standard money have being tied to some um, objective standard of value and being uh, corrupted and what that essentially means so and yeah, I guess I'd just like to round off the point and like uh, reaffirm it just to kind of summarize everything that we've said at a kind of higher level. So we spoke about how gold is, it's not just that great societies of the past who became wealthy and prosperous and smart uh, and expressed them and, you know, grew a, a literary class even and, and, and things like that. It's not that they became smart enough to recognize that gold was money and then started to use it. The ubiquity of gold being the money throughout all of these civilizations is because gold is the prerequisite for your civilization to be able to flourish in the physical world, right? So having this We've spoken about the three functions of money, unit of account, medium of exchange, store of value. Having this high quality, dependable, scarce store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account, empowered people within those societies to create great wealth and prosperity through trade. And that is the thing at the, the basis underneath those societies which allowed them to build all this wealth on top 
and people kind of manifest their behaviors, their preferences, cultural, societal, economic preferences through the institutions they build. And we spoke last time about how uh, the function of like a, an institution is to kind of abstract away some of the, the need to think about things. So the rule of law means that you kind of outsource uh, the many of your security needs to the state and that frees you up to think about other things. Now, the fact that no civilization throughout history reached greatness without gold, it would seem, and I, I guess greatness is perhaps somewhat subjective, but just those that are kind of colloquially widely held to be the great civilizations throughout history is demonstrative of just how intrinsic to a well-functioning society those three functions of money are. Given how important those things are, we can say that the, and the fact that no society reached greatness without gold, we can say that gold or the thing you use as your money forms the foundation of society itself everything else is built on top that is what sits at the base it's the foundation of your society of your economy of your culture when we replaced the gold standard with the fiat standard which many seek to justify through for example the need to defer broad institutional collapse you essentially pulled the rug out from under society and it's like to use an analogy people I've, I've read about how Manhattan uh, is kind of the reason you can build so many skyscrapers in Manhattan is because of the the geological characteristics of the the bedrock underneath it uh, and it's like if you look at a map of Manhattan like there's no skyscrapers between it's midtown and either uptown or downtown and it's because the, the geological makeup of the bedrock changes, right? Mm. So essentially what we did was we built Manhattan on this um, firm bedrock, this firm grounding. And then we replaced the foundation with sand. Mm. So the thing which had underpinned and facilitated our rise to greatness, gold, on top of which we had built our economy, institutions, had shaped the character of our culture, we were a place with something entirely different. And yeah, so sometimes I like to think about, you know how when you think about people of the past, peoples of the past, civilizations of the past, you take this like 50,000 foot, really far removed view. Sometimes I like to think about how people will see the times that we're living through in the future. And I really think that any, any account that doesn't focus on the character of the money and the way that that has affect culture will be, will be incomplete. And I really think this is like the kind of primary lens to take to understand society. So we've spoken about how economics is the study of scarcity and Ultimately, when you have uh, an objective standard of value, when your currency is tied to an objective standard of value, 
scarcity is properly priced. Everything is properly priced. And therefore your economic decisions are tied to reality. These things influence our culture. And what it means is that your, your culture is tied to reality as well when you are on a sound monetary standard, a gold standard, as it was in the past. So your institutions on a sound monetary standard have less room to maneuver because they're tied to objective reality. So whether they be educational, uh, financial, in charge of some level of governance, they're kept honest. Everyone's on the same footing because nobody's any closer to the, the money spigot, as uh, Sabo likes to say. Whereas on a fiat standard, you're attempting to continue the activities of your institutions despite having severed the tie to objective reality, mm. giving your institutions essentially a hell of a lot of room to maneuver, removing the tie of your culture and economic activities from that of objective reality. And so it's almost like, why would you even expect for things to keep working when you replace this thing is, that is so fundamental? And I, I think to round off this point, it's semi-related to a point I've heard you made, you make before about how fiat money kind of embeds dishonesty into the system. For whatever reason you go off a, a, a sound monetary standard, what comes next is inevitable. And that is deception. Mm. Central bankers, politicians, economists are hugely disincentivized to talk about the long-term pernicious effects of monetary inflation and the effects of monetary policy. And so economists are incentivized not to look at it. They kind of hold the, um, the assumptions of their economic paradigm, the Keynesian economic paradigm to be true. And they don't look outside them. Politicians don't want to look outside them because if they, if they, stay within the paradigm, they acknowledge or um, they kind of build their framework with inflation being a core part of it. They can promise more. Just look what happened to Ron Paul, right? Here's a guy who um, has been speaking about a lot of this for decades, right? And he's been, um, I think in... There are those who like him, but in popular culture, he's seen as like really fringe, um, a throwback, uh, and was kind of attacked for a, a while. Um, and what you end up getting is, so central bankers are at the root of it. They're in cahoots with politicians and the government. And you get things like Jerome Powell, chairman of the Fed, coming out and saying, uh, we don't know what causes inequality. Uh, there are lots of different theories, but inflation doesn't seem to be one of them. Bold face lie. And, but again, that Munger quote, show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. You almost can't acknowledge it within the system because if you did, there'd be a revolt. Mm -hmm. This thing that is currently on a societal level, quite niche kind of uh, Austrian economics, sound money advocacy, uh, Bitcoinism, you want to call it that 
that is currently quite niche would be widespread and you couldn't get away away with it you, the institutions which are predicated on this fiat monetary paradigm wouldn't be possible so speaking about how the thing which is at the base the money which allows the things the institutions to be built on top of it the culture to be built on top of it shapes the, the character of the economy and your culture when you move from an objective standard of value which is closely tied to reality and you move towards one which has that tie severed you embed dishonesty into the system mm. it's like the original sin of the system mm. dishonesty is embedded we all know that politicians are dishonest right they don't say what they mean and what have you but we also acknowledge that this is for, this is somehow the norm and to be expected and i think that's the kind of lens that most people are missing which is it's embedded into the system at the very root because it's embedded into the money i think it's a great point um so the line of and this is i think it's very interesting you, you tied that together in a way i hadn't directly thought about it before is that the entire purpose of an institution is really to reduce the amount of thought we need to apply to something to solving a problem the the, the number of brain cycles that need to go into solving this problem the institution becomes kind of a protocol right we all just kind of trust that it works in the way that it works and we uh, reallocate our attention to other aims more or less and in that way an institution, an ideal sense, is actually creating an energetic surplus or, or improving productivity, right? It's letting us accomplish the same results with less effort, less brain cycles. And, but it needs to be anchored in objective reality to determine whether it's producing or there's, whether it's doing its intended purpose. Either it is creating this energy surplus or improving productivity by allowing us, by successfully accomplishing an objective without us having to think about it as much, or uh, perhaps it's creating an economic deficit or an energy deficit, in which case it needs to be disbanded, right? It needs to be, like, like any private enterprise, it should be bankrupted, torn down, the capital that it, um, comprises it should be reallocated to other aims. But when we break gold, right, or we break our connection to gold, we've broken money's anchor into objective reality, we've severed the skin in the game of these institutions. So now what do they do? They've been given this unlimited latitude, right? They're all, they're, they're, they're like all organisms and organizations, they're self-interested, so they're gonna fight for their own survival. But now they're not accountable to a PL. Well, of course, what, what of course what happens? They become deceptive. They start lying about what they're doing because they, even if if they're cr not creating value, how are they relevant in the world? And if they're gonna fight for their own self-interest, that natural divergence between the value they're destroying and the uh, impulse to survive, right, as, at an institutional level, means they're gonna lie. There's gonna be deception built into the organization. So it's back to this 
core Talebian principle of when you remove skin in the game, systems rot, right? In this case, the rot being corruption and dishonesty. And that is what the central bank is. It is perhaps intended for whatever reason you think it was set up for. It has diverged so far from its original purpose and become so corroded by rot and corruption that it's you know, barely recognizable at this point. And that is the dominant institution in the world. We, the dominant institution in the world is riddled with corruption today. And that, I think, is why Bitcoin is so damn important. It's, it's an alternative system that forces you to be responsible and have skin in the game, be accountable to your PL, be accountable for your own actions. That stands in contradistinction to this totally unaccountable system that is basically plundering the Commonwealth at will with every dollar printed. Yeah, and what, what I like about these kind of uh, explorations of the, the morality around Bitcoin and sound money versus fiat is that, so I, I grew up within a, a paradigm um, that was kind of like very kind of left wing um, and I think for a lot of people, so I said that if I was like an American, I'd be, I'd have been like a Bernie bro. That was, that's like the, the equivalent, um, the US equivalent. I think what a lot of people on the left recognize is that a lot of the uh, inequality in society is unearned and that on some level, um, the way capital and, and privilege are allocated throughout society is just BS. Mm. And we've kind of, we've, our morality, our culture, and the way we think about justice in the world and the way we should live in morality is shaped by this fiat monetary paradigm. And the reason I like kind of meditating on this stuff is if I could, I, I often see people on Twitter or the news or whatever, um, I think if I could short you, I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it, if I could short like mainstream kind of contemporary thought in so many different domains on, on the environment, on uh, social justice, on, on whatever, I, I really would. And when it comes to Bitcoin, speaking about forecasting into the future and how any forecast into, you know, the 2030s and beyond needs to um, factor in one million plus dollars per Bitcoin or whatever the equivalent market cap size is and therefore its influence in the world. If I could um, long, if I could invest in these ideas this kind of uh, worldview, I really would, because we we tend towards the hardest money in a, a given um, on a long enough time horizon, and Bitcoin is the hardest money now. It's also uh, digitally native, which is very important in terms of where the the uh, society and the economy is going. 
So when I kind of discuss this kind of thing with Bitcoiners, I kind of think of it as we're exploring and trying to and understanding what will be the kind of bedrock of morality as we go through the, the 21st century. Because the money, as we've said, underpins our institutions, the economy, our, shapes our culture. Mm. Understanding Bitcoin, Bitcoinism, as uh, I think Nick Carter has called it, and the, the kind of beliefs around it, and the, yeah, the emergent kind of culture that is currently very kind of nascent, is like understanding the future. These things will become more widely held right. and sound money will become the bedrock of morality, tradition, our institutions once again. So I, I just find that very interesting. Yeah, we're back to the, I love this quote and I've, <laughs> I feel like when I say it, most people are just kind of glossed over and they don't take it as deeply as maybe I, I, I sense that it is, is that human nature is like water. It takes the shape of its container. All right, we're back to this. What are the incentives? You're pouring the, this, um, these patterns of human action across time into certain defined bounds, right? These, these socioeconomic systems have boundaries and incentives built into them. And the behavior, again, is emergent of those structures that we're building and that's why gen x accumulated a ton of wealth and now they have sugar babies that's why millennials buy avocado and toast instead of houses and that's why the bitcoiners of tomorrow will have low time preference free private cities uh elevated social morality uh you know all of these things they emerge from the system we're operating in so that's where i don't think people Bitcoiners get it, I, I think, to an extent that this is an entirely new socioeconomic paradigm, not just economic, because it actually includes yeah. our morality and our social systems and our, our communities even. Um, that is, it's alternative and in many ways antithetical to everything we know today. All of the systems we know today, Bitcoin is a foundation to something entirely new. And that's mm -hmm. why it is very difficult to describe <laughs> in just a few words, very difficult to even imagine the implications of where this takes us. We're talking about something as significant as the transition from you know, possibly the agricultural into the industrial age or, or even greater. Um, and yeah, but it's also what makes it so exciting. The possibilities are seemingly limitless. Yeah, true. And it also, um... I kind of, I try to observe my own mind because, um, you know, ultimately I'm just a, a human who recognizes the implications of sound money and the way that they are shaping my incentives. Um, and one of the things that I find myself thinking about is it's going to pay far more to, um, invest your time and reputation in your local community mm. than it has been in the past. Um, we're also moving into a more digital world. Mm -hmm. I don't fully understand the, the implications of that, but we spoke about how the kind of the seat of government, the, 
the person you put into government every four or five years. Uh, that's becoming more important because that seat has accrued more power. Mm -hmm. But in understanding that that power will naturally decentralize when the monetary pressures towards centralization are taken away and the technological pressures towards decentralization are kind of respected and unleashed because you don't have the money standing in the way of them. Once you, yeah, you, you kind of start to apply, try to apply that up to your own life and think about how to allocate your time. And that's one of the things that I've noticed is, yeah, there's more of an incentive to engage in your local community. And I think I was speaking about the, the things I would short. Um, one of the things I would long is like localism. Mm. Yeah, I, I can't articulate it beyond that, but um, I find myself intrigued by um, Taleb and uh, I think his name is Joe Norman, one of his collaborators, their attitudes towards localism. Um, and yeah, just trying to understand what Bitcoin means for the future because there is a determinant deterministic relationship between the money and the economy and the culture and if you understand bitcoin now and you try to project its implications into the future for yourself then you are under you are understanding the nature of the future of society mm. yeah um I'm intrigued by this as well because I agree that I think if we just look at government. I think post Bitcoin, we can say with a high degree of certainty that government will tend to relocalize. Uh, the fiat mechanism is really the way they've they've um, scaled themselves to to the size that we know the nation state today. So it only seems logical that when you remove that mechanism. The government would revert back to its sort of net, its free market um, mode, if you will, which is to kind of protect and preserve peace at a local level. Um, so with that comes a collapse in you know international global warfare, um, violence in general, and this is the whole sovereign individual thesis. But then I also wonder, in the di digital age, how far is this going to progress? Like we see. Today, it's all through, all of the, the digital existence is intermediated, mostly through screen time, either your laptop or your smartphone. But as the hardware is increasingly out of the way, so to speak, whether this is Google Glasses, augmented reality, virtual reality even, will those become much more of a component of our lives, our day-to-day -day lives, like these virtual communities um, you know, if the technology gets to a point where it's hard to distinguish between the real world and the virtual world, and we're all able to assemble on, you know, all of us Bitcoiners can assemble in some virtual island and have a party together and talk and chat, all these things, will that actually be a thing? Um, it sounds fanciful now, but the way the acceleration in which the digital age has been unfolding, like every passing year makes me think it's more and more of a possibility. Uh, and I've also been reading Jeff Booth's book recently, uh, The Price of Tomorrow, which, what a deceiving title, by the way. I thought I was going to read a book about, focused on economics and deflation, which it is in a way, but it's really more focused on the technology itself. 
And he's talking about augmented and virtual reality and how quickly innovation is accelerating and how deflationary that will be to prices. Because again, you're, it's, as we increase productivity, prices should come down naturally as a result. And the entire premise of central banking is on increasing prices. They need to erode real debt burdens over time with inflation so that they can protect the interest of the biggest debtor in the room, which is government. <laughs> um, so this, he, the book's wonderful, by the way. Um, and it just goes into the, the, the rate at which technology is accelerating these domains, augmented and virtual reality. And um, it goes back to my long held thesis on the world that I grew up playing video games. Uh, what, one of the main ones that I played was this massive mul online multiplayer game called Diablo 2. And I learned a lot actually in this game because there were, there were markets inside of the game. So you could buy and sell items and you could become wealthy and whatnot. Um, and also learned how to type really fast. But I, I was left with the impression because by the, the, towards the end of my years playing this game, the items you could find, there are rare items in the game, they started selling for real money on eBay. People were paying thousands of dollars for a sword or a shield or different things like that. So it left me with this impression that there's value to be had in the digital world. It doesn't need to be anchored into the real world necessarily. Um, and I, I think that the world in many ways is just becoming a video game, right? More and more of our, our interactions and relationships are mediated by screen. I mean, people are dating. Dating's like a video game now. You're swiping left, you're swiping right. You're making little advertisements, um, you know, trading, trading stocks. Uh, almost everything you do, buying car insurance, everything you do is online now, and they're trying to gamify everything that exists. So, um, yeah, I just wonder what it's going to be like. Like, we'll have more localism in analog reality, but potentially more globalism if you would call it that in digital reality where you can just be everywhere and nowhere instantaneously yeah it's an odd one because th those forces definitely um both exist at the same time decentralization push pushing us kind of elevating the local community in terms of significance and therefore you know uh, your return on investment to put it uh reduce it to something financial which is not it's more than that your, your return on investment, return on time invested um, is going to be more because the, you know, your local community is more significant in whatever way. Um, but yeah, uh, digital technology is global by design. Bitcoin is global by design and by default. It doesn't know, it doesn't understand geography or national borders. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, very interesting one. I think... Um, the, the reason I love speaking to Bitcoiners and one of the reasons it, it falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole makes it difficult to speak to non-Bitcoiners about current events or social issues or what have you, because you're just coming, you just have a, such a fundamentally different um, bedrock for your perspective um, is Bitcoiners are fundamentally hopeful mm. that those who, whose mental models are anchored in the fiat paradigm um, 
are very kind of uh, despairing, yeah. I would say. Um, so I, I spoke, I think last time I spoke about how um, these things manifest this, themselves, you know, a generation's experiences manifest themselves in the culture and popular culture. And we spoke about films um, with, uh, and we, we said Gen X, for Gen X, this kind of um, despair around the system was quite niche and that the films that have endured in terms of relevance to today are those which kind of explored it um, while that feeling of despair is becoming more widespread. Mm. We, we spoke about the red pill meme. One of the, the re related meme is like the, the black pill. Mm. Take the black pill is to despair, essentially. Um, and this, um, the importance of not succumbing to despair is one of the most ancient pieces of human wisdom. It's the original, no, not the original sin. One of the, un the unforgivable sin, I believe. Um, because it's essentially a kind of rejection of God's ultimate capacity for ultimate power and ultimate capacity for forgiveness, mm -hmm. kind of rejecting God in that way. And in this way, I've kind of been thinking about the Joker. Uh, no, just Joker, isn't it? It's called as like a fundamentally millennial film. Mm. So we spoke about how um, films becoming commercially successful and like resonating with a wide audience is very uh, indicative of how wide, how relevant its themes are and resonant widely and deeply held its themes are to, to the audience and to that generation. Joker was one of the most commercially successful films the last few years. I think I read it's the most um, commercially successful R-rated movie of all time. Wow. Uh, and in perhaps the true litmus test for cultural relevance in 21, uh, it inspired a wide variety of memes. And if you look at the themes within Joker, it's essentially, it is a man succumbing to despair. It's uh, he goes through some tough times. He's failed by the institutions of the day, which are supposed to look, look out for him. And he just succumbs to the ultimate loneliness and despair, the temptation to despair that he experiences in, in his everyday life. And it, it consumes his character. Um, that is a fundamentally millennial film. It's a fundamentally 2020 early 21st century film. It's a film of its moment. It's also kind of a, it's not a fiat. I won't say it's a fiat film. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a film of late central banking. Mm -hmm. This widely held temptation to succumb to despair. This Joker character is so magnetic because people kind of feel his struggle in a way. Yeah. And it, it's one of the reasons it inspired so many different memes. 
and why people were dressing up um, as the Joker during uh, the, the riots of last year. And just in contrasting the, the fiat paradigm, fiat mindset with the Bitcoin mindset, Bitcoiners, by contrast, are fundamentally hopeful. Uh, this has been recognized by Weinstein himself. He said uh, the Nakamoto Collective is the only forward-looking thing I can think of. Uh, Satoshi, what you created wasn't money but hope. Um, Kanye West, uh, visionary, genius in my book, um, recognized this. On his Joe Rogan interview, he spoke about... Um, he said he was talking. He said like the Bitcoin guys are one of the the groups with a, a vision for the liberation of America or something like that. That the, he was recognizing the hope within the Bitcoiners' vision, um, and yeah, hope and optimism is just a fundamental part of the the Bitcoiners' um, view on the world and. I, yeah, there's this, um, one of my favorite uh, Bitcoin writers at the minute is Nick Carter. I think he's, he's been on fire for a while. Yeah. Uh, and it, yeah, his piece, Bitcoin at 12, which he published on uh, the anniversary of the white paper, I think. Yeah, in October. Um, he said, what's the measure of a healthy society? Arguably, it's a willingness to undertake long-term projects whose completion their originators will never live to see. Virtually any, anything worth building takes time to build. Enduring institutions don't come easy. I think he speaks about the fact that we don't build cathedrals anymore. Right. Um, we've become short-termist. The future is something to fear. Many people feel a temptation to succumb to despair. Well, all of those things are long-term um, mindset, a long-term outlook, starting projects which you won't see the end of. Those things are rooted in hope, mm -hmm. and it's one of the it's one of the reasons again, a reason to be bullish on Bitcoin, and a reason that you see so many people resisting Bitcoin. It's like they hate it until they they move over and accept it. Mm. Um, and interestingly, when I was like initially falling down the rabbit hole, I would find that my understanding of Bitcoin would plateau until I would accept something new about it. Mm. So again, going back to what I said about being a kind of Bernie bro, um, I kind of almost didn't like the implication that um, certain things I liked about government action were by uh, within the kind of Bitcoin conception of things uh, very problematic. And my understanding of Bitcoin just plateaued until I moved forward and accepted, accepted that. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it, it bends not just economic rea reality, but cultural re reality and people's way of thinking to its fundamental scarcity. Um, yeah, and it's, it's another reason to be bullish, not just Bitcoin, but Bitcoiners. We're fundamentally hopeful. We're long-term thinkers. We have low time preference. Um, and yeah, just fundamentally hopeful. 
Yeah, I think it's clearly an excellent point. I, I like it so much that I wrote a piece about it called Bitcoin is Hope. Oh, yeah, you did. You did. It's, you know, somewhat inspired by Sailor, who said, said the same thing, like the bottom of the rabbit hole, Bitcoin is Hope. hope um, yeah, hope.com, right? Yeah, hope.com. He owns the, the domain. Um, but I think that you're pointing towards what it actually, I mean, it's a very emotion laden word, you know, Obama ran a campaign on it and all of this, but what is hope really other than this uh, belief that the future can be better than the present, right? There's something to work towards. So it, it is an, it is an impetus to work ultimately. And, um, you know, Bitcoin by lowering your time horizon, I'm sorry, lowering your time preference, which is elevating your time horizon, it does get to this point, I would argue that it extends beyond your own life. Um, it's not to say that only money influences your time preference in this way. I think having kids too is another thing that influences your time preference beyond your own life. Um, but it's certainly by encouraging you to ask these fundamental questions about reality, like what is money, what is government, you start to look at things at a much higher level. You start to question your own axiomatic assumptions, which to, to comprehend Bitcoin, most of us need to replace a few of those axiomatic assumptions on which our worldview is, is upheld. And in that process, I think you find hope ultimately, because it is, this is a way to rebuild the world that is more conducive uh, and reflective of the voice of the people, right? It's like we, people, it's, it's power returning to the people and the old democratic adage is, is Bitcoin is power to the people ultimately. Mm. Uh, it's a, a defraying of the institutions that have tried to grab on to people and control them and corral them via these tax farms we call central banks. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a liberation from the matrix in many ways, not only in your own perception, but in the actual harvesting of your life force that occurs through quantitative easing and inflation. Like we're all being robbed all the time. We don't all know it, but we all feel it for sure. And this, you know, Bitcoin is the, the great hope of Bitcoin is to remove that uh, unnecessary anxiety from our lives. Yeah, I think it's telling that Bitcoiners have kind of adopted the um, the Mars mission and the Mars vision. Mm. Um, lots of Bitcoiners very interested in that. Um, yeah, I, I've read numerous things on it, and like people. There are numerous Bitcoiners who have begun to think in terms of like Kardashev scales, mm -hmm. which is so the Kardashev scale, I believe it refers to like the um, energy consumption of different theoretical um, civilizations. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know the specifics. There is a point on this scale or this civilization is harnessing enough energy that it could be intergalactic right like yeah yeah so it, yeah it's like the planetary civilization the interplanetary civilization 
the galactic civilization. Yeah. Um, thinking about the future of humanity in these terms. Yeah. The, a person within the fiat paradigm would like shudder to think about these things because in the fiat paradigm, energy consumption is synonymous with environmental destruction right. because it's become synonymous with uh, carbon intensity right. and uh, destructive climate change. Bitcoiners can see beyond that because we're kind of freed from the um, environmental conception it's not that we don't, don't care about the environment. I would argue that we care about it more and certainly more authentically. More intelligent um, too. Yeah, I would agree. Um, but what you get from kind of ex accepting Bitcoin and falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole is like a credible and hopeful and not kind of fundamentally destructive vision of the future. Um, and we can think about progress, we can think about going to Mars, we can think about becoming an interplanetary civilization and maintain hope and um, maintain our love for the environment and, and believe that these things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Right. Yeah, it's not... Civilization is advancing the more energy... Which, by the way, when we say energy consumption, I don't think the term is like, that's kind of a fiat term too, because you're not, you don't yeah. consume energy. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. This is a principle of thermodynamics. We're harnessing energy towards the achievement of our aims based on our, our value structure. So it's all about how effectively we can harness energy without degradating the environment, which would which would negatively impact or adversely impact future energy consumption because then we have to actually clean up the environment to live because you know we need cleanliness and and sanitation to survive so it we do need to think about that and again that's why bitcoin as we touched on earlier in the show it's whatever we monetize we produce more of right gold led to more gold production fiat led to more debt production bitcoin because it's monetized energy in theory, leads to more energy production. The incentives direct us towards creating more energy efficient technologies and, and ways to harness the energy of the world, which, by the way, the, the amount of energy, right, I'm looking out at the ocean right now and just see all these tidal forces driven by the gravitational energy of the earth, you know, spinning through the solar system, which is driven by the solar energy of our, our sun, the amount of energy that we are immersed in is simply staggering. We don't, it's not like we're looking for it. Like, where's the energy? Where are we going to get it? Like it's all around us. And then I think the number that I saw in Jeff's book was enough energy just from sunlight enough falls on the earth in one hour, maybe it was two hours to fuel all of our energy consumption for a year, the whole planet. So if we could just capture one hour of sunlight, and translate it into mechanical work, one hour, we'd satisfy all of our needs for a year. So it's about getting smarter. It's not consuming or even producing energy, it's just harnessing energy more intelligently. 
That's what we need to do. And to do that, we have to harness the most powerful computing resource available to us, which is the free market. That is the collective intelligence of every human being on the planet, operating with their own sphere of interest and communicating with one another through the price signal. The free market is the ultimate distributed computing system, and it's the only way we'll ever get to these higher degrees of um, Kardashev civilizations, if I pronounce it correctly. Indeed. Yeah, I would recommend anybody who wants to understand um, energy consumption, the history of energy consumption, and the relationship between energy consumption and, I keep saying energy consumption, even though we just said it's a fiat term, um, <laughs> energy usage and uh, our standard of living, quality of life, I'd recommend um, there's a book, Energy and Civilization by Václav Smil. Mm. Um, yeah, it's an incredible, I don't like him as a thinker, but I love him as an author and a, a researcher. So dense, so readable. Um, just one of those books, um, you, you kind of, you know, the 80-20 rule, the Pareto principle, mm. I guess if we apply that to books, you get 80% of the value from 20% of the books. It's one of those 20%, awesome. absolutely. Check it out. Um, yeah, and the thing, one of my main takeaways from that, which for some reason surprised me, um, the more energy we use and harness, the higher our quality of life, the higher our standard of living. This is what the um, agricultural revolution was, which I believe was quite long-term, using, you know, using animals to animate plows and whatever, um, using better plows to more efficiently capture the energy um, that was going into producing our food, uh, central heating, air conditioning, mm -hmm. um, the advent of the invention of refrigeration and air conditioning made parts of America and part of the world habitable, which weren't before. Right. Um, yeah, the, the, you, you cannot separate the energy we harness the amount of energy we harness from our standard standard of living if we want to reach a higher standard of living and crucially for socially minded people if you want more of the world to enjoy the standard of living that we do in the west mm -hmm. let alone us in the west enjoying a higher standard of living mm -hmm. that necessarily means more energy consumption mm -hmm. We have to get smarter about how we do it, sure. I'm, I'm no expert on um, the impact of carbon and stuff. I know uh, Safety has uh, uh, an essay, I believe, on the, uh, the moral case for fo fossil fuels, which has been on my reading list for a while, but I haven't read it yet. Um, I haven't read that one yet either, but I would say that another thing, this is from Booth's book, uh, I'm just reading it right now, so a lot of it's top of mind. He makes the point that you know, desalination of salt water to drinking water, the tech, we have the technology today. It's just not economically efficient necessarily, but by, through the proliferation of something like solar energy, where we can just basically lower the, I, I think the metric they use, the levelized cost of energy. So it's basically just the, the, the universal metric for measuring how expensive it is to generate energy on a per watt basis. 
as solar proliferates and lowers that cost, at some point desalination becomes economically feasible. All of a sudden, we've solved the world's drinking water problems, at least the coast and whatnot. We can just liter quite literally build a factory that turns salt water and drink into drinking water. And then that same type, the reason it's so, uh, it's just an energy intensive process to do that. You have to push um, the salt water through a reverse osmosis membrane at very high pressure to desalinate. So that's why it's, it's not economically feasible currently, um, but would be on solar. The same type of purification process is useful for air to actually cleanse carbon from air. So again, it's to this point where the more intelligently and the more cheaply we can harness energy, the more uh, we can satisfy our aims, one of which would be clean water, clean air kind of thing. So we're thinking backwards in the fiat paradigm where it's like, oh, we should tax carbon or pass a law that'll do this. Like all you're doing then is trying to fix human prior human intervention with more human intervention that creates more unintended consequences. What you have to do instead, again, is advance our utility of energy, basically, which is the entire premise of the free market. We're trading with one another to be more energy efficient, to increase our productivity. We have to let that natural capitalistic process play out to fix the problems in the world. And that at the bottom of all that is the money, right? You fix the money, you fix capitalism, you fix capitalism, you fix the world. Yeah, the, the relationship between Bitcoin and the energy grid and the suggestion, I, I accept that it's true. I don't get how it's true personally, um, that Bitcoin will kind of reshape the energy grid in its image because um, ultimately it provides you a way to monetize perhaps previously stranded sources of energy. Um, which could provide an incentive to build new energy infrastructure. Um, yeah, as I've said, uh, who was it? The Stone Ridge uh, letter, which Michael Saylor published on his website. Uh, I forget the name of the CEO, but. No, Stevens. Um, right, okay. Is he a hedge fund manager? Is that a hedge fund? No, so Nidig is a. Uh, so Stone Ridge is a Wall Street firm, and then NIDA right. is their Bitcoin-focused firm. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, he, sp he sp spoke about the potential to monetize, like, stranded sources of energy in, you know, wherever there's a waterfall, for example, in remote places in Africa. Um, and the fact that it could change the way people live around it because it population centers tend to uh, center around like yeah sources of energy yeah um th this yeah this is fascinating to me and i was listening to sailor speak to safety uh, on his on safety's the bitcoin standard podcast the other day and um they had a disagreement about um it was about the stock to flow model and essentially how the stock to flow model kind of assumes that uh, minor revenue as a function of uh, the halving, the four yearly halving of uh, not the block, the block reward minus the fees mm -hmm. um, kind of 
deterministically affects price because it affects um, minor revenues, which affects the uh, number of people who can mine. Uh, and because most miners sell, acts on both sides of the price and is therefore kind of deterministically, well, determining the price. Um, but Sailor pushed back and said, at some point, like Bitcoin miners are going to like go public right. and they're going to get incredible funding Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, they'll get to a point where it'll essentially be a bet on the future and they will mine at a loss um, in order to uh, accumulate more Bitcoins. And therefore, th he was talking about why this invalidates the stock to flow model, um, which I thought was interesting. But within all of that, there, is there are huge downstream effects for the energy industry. And some people talk about how we could see the worlds of finance and energy yes. um, fuse right. because if if you are a Bitcoin miner with kind of with access to the issuance of Bitcoins, rather than sell them and just get the uh, first order effect of that, you know the the revenue first order revenue, build financial services on on top of it, um, yeah. and again just huge both downstream and upstream um, implications for the energy industry, which, as we've said, is uh, one of the key determinants of human quality of life. Which means the energy producers of today are the banks of tomorrow, effectively. Which, again, yeah. that's all money ever was intended to be, was a representation of energy, right? Either the energy we've used to create the capital in the world or the energy available to create new capital. Money's just mapping onto that, saying this is a claim on that energy. Now Bitcoin is enabling a more direct relationship with that by being a mechanism for directly monetizing energy. And it does reshape everything. Reshapes how we civilize, where we civilize, what our institutions look like. It's profound. 